Good morning and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I have a very special guest today. He is an incredible vessel of knowledge. This man transitioned from being a truck driver to a Cornell University graduate veterinarian, all for the love of a woman. He's an equine veterinarian who has specialized solely in dentistry since the 90s and has very recently finished his 75,000th dental exam on a horse, almost all of it without sedation or speculums. He wears a special Kevlar sleeve and he has fingers made of steel. Dr. Jeff Tucker, how are you doing this morning? Fingers made of steel. Oh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, the, the word brave and stupid are often like, often interchanged. <laughs> Just don't tell a Marine. <laughs> a chick's dick scars. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and Thanks for having me, Daniel. I enjoy your company. Uh, your humor is fantastic. Uh, and humor just drives the world. Laughter is the best mes- medicine. And I love this adult onset <laughs> horsemanship. <laughs> it's just like, it was actually, you a know, you see the customer the- used and I stole it from them. I said that that's too good. I'm going to have to steal that one. So how many, how many uh, of these horse owners have had uh, dreams of being a horse owner, uh, being a star, and then all of a sudden, they life catches up and they become uh, married and family and kids and responsibilities and getting a job. And then all of a sudden they've got some free time on their hands and they say, Hey, let's go buy a horse. And you're like, Oh, and that's where you and I come in because they have no mentors and the mentors they've got are people who have agendas who want to get in there and dip into their purse and take their money to do certain things. And uh, over the decades, you and I have seen this, and it's it's troubling because we're representing or advocating for the horse, and we want to do the best for the horse, and we see all this crap going on, and we're stepping up and saying, okay, you know, let's become a trusted source of information for these adult onset horse owners, and and it's refreshing. It's also confusing because when you get three or four different ways of doing the same thing you're left confused, your head's spinning, you don't know who to believe anymore. But I hope that if people just look at our faces, I mean, look at your face, look at my face, we're trustworthy, right? That's right. Good symmetry going so, on, left to right. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're clean shaven, I, oh, I no, not, scared, which is supposed to mean I'm hiding something, but anyway. Well, let's, I shaved let's, just for you this morning. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Seldom do men shave just for me. So this is a special treat. <laughs> no aftershave though, buddy. So calm down. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, we'll jump into the lightning round questions, which are for points. And uh, these are just the icebreaker stuff. So short answer kind of thing. So what is your favorite way to relax? Uh, working on the computer and developing content. So writing, is that what you say? That's one of your, in your own world? Uh, writing, podcasts. I'm doing two-minute drills uh, when I'm sitting there in the car waiting for the electricity to flow into it. I'll pull out my iPad and my microphone, and I'll blast out a two-minute drill. It's just, um, it's constant. I, I Relaxation for me is what I do. It's just, I know everyone says it's wrong. You're going to die young. It's just not... I might as well die doing what I love. Sorry, that's just the way it is. There you go. Morning or evening? 
Morning. Bay or sorrel? You know that all horses are either red or black genetically, right? There's no other colors. It's red or black. And they're all modifications. What about Perlino and Carmelo and paint? They're all, all dilutions of black and red. I have a whole uh, podcast on that if you want to know. A whole seminar on that. So uh, I, I, it, I don't care what color. I had a, a black guy come up to me once in the airport and he says, are you afraid to talk to me? Like, why would I be afraid to talk to you? And he says, well, I've got, you know, black skin and I'm wearing a black do-rag. And I like said, well, you, you don't know this, but I'm a doctor. So there's no lie there. And then I said, you know, I've, I've done a lot of autopsies, which, you know, he just assumed as humans. I said, once I get the skin off, everything looks the same. <laughs> and he said, I think I picked the wrong person to talk to. <laughs> You flip that intimidation factor around on him a little bit there. I'm sorry. My answer is uh, it doesn't matter whether you're red or black. Good horse is never a bad color. Mm -hmm. Does pineapple belong on pizza? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you have a Give me sausage? Sausage. Do you have um, a pizza? Liars. Yeah, liars, cheats, and thieves. Favorite beverage? Bulletproof coffee in the morning. Would you like to share with us something totally unexpected about you? I would imagine you're a guy that's got a bunch of those things. but Yeah, you already gave away that. I used to be a truck driver, drove 18-wheelers. I can recite to you a 13-speed, uh, fuller 18-speed uh, Spicer transmission if you want. And now this former truck driver used to drive one-ton pickups for a living, uh, now drives a Tesla. So I guess that's the most exciting thing for most people. And I'm a geek. I just, you know, technology is my thing. If you could choose any superpower, what would it be? Uh, getting rid of sleep. Okay. Just get rid of sleep. Uh, I, I love sleep. Sleep is so important. But <laughs> if I could get rid of sleep, I could just do so much more. <laughs> I think this one's kind of apparent by now, but. Thoughts or feelings? Oh, I'm a feeling guy. Absolutely. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Um, I'm emotional. Uh, I cried reading my autobiography uh, until the 10th time I reread it <laughs> for proofing for the editor. And uh, Melissa would say, you know, I'd be sitting there bawling my eyes out. She says, oh, you finished the book. <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> Well, so that, yeah, I'm emotional. Is that out and available for purchase? You want to plug it? Uh, since the days of the Romans, my journey of discovering a life with horses. It's on Amazon. You can get it as part of a membership. If you join the Horse Advocate, you can download it, read it. it. It's just, you know, how does a guy who dropped out of college three times uh, get Cornell to say, yeah, we'll take you in. You can finish your undergraduate here. And then um, after, you know, my first try to get into vet school, they said, come on in. And then just before I'm about to leave, the secretary for the head of admissions confided with me. With me. She said, were you nervous about your interviews and getting into, into vet school? And I said, I was sweating bullets down my armpits. And they were just like, I was just like, I'd never sweat so much in my life. She says, I don't know why you did that. You were a number one choice. And that just, you could have knocked me over the feather, you know, because I had no idea, no idea. I'm not the smartest man in the world by far. I'm not the smartest man in the world. I can't remember people's names. 
I, you know, it's all, you know, my brain is different. There's no doubt about it. My brain is so freaking different. And uh, so, yeah, that's my autobiography since the days of the Romans. Very cool. Do you have a favorite tool or piece of tack horse related? Lead rope and halter. A favorite book or movie? Since days of the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many favorite books. It all depends on what genre you want. I read a lot. Uh, by read, I, I've got to put air quotes because most of mine is as I drive, I listen to audiobooks. I love Malcolm Gladwell's books, uh, Outliers. I like, um, uh, is it Michael Green, Stephen Green? I can't remember. Stephen Green was a high school classmate of mine. G-R-E-E-N-E, -E -E, Mastery. I love that book. Uh, I only bought it because the guy who narrated it, I went to high school with. And in fact, he and his brother were high school classmates. Uh, and you actually know one of the brothers, if you've watched, ever watched Law and Order or whatever, he's been in so many TV shows and movies. But he's by far and away Fred uh, Sanders, the best audio uh, narrator I've ever heard in my life. And through him, I fell in love with the book Mastery. Uh, movies, um, Apollo 13. I can watch that over and over again. And it's tied with... Uh, Joe versus the volcano. It just so happens both of them stars Tom Hanks, but they're both life lessons. So that's what I like about you. You're an eclectic guy, very much so. <laughs> For those who don't you know, eclectic just means confused. <laughs> Is there a preventable question or problem that you get sick of answering or dealing with that you wish the horse world would just figure this out and we would move past it? I know that could be four books for you. So, so just pick some small thing. No, I, I've learned over the years that I get asked the same questions. Uh, they're predictable. I can guess, you know, like name that tune with one note. As soon as the first word comes out, I know what they're going to say. Uh, I allow them to say it. And then I just uh, take a deep breath. I find that patience part of my uh, thing. And I just go back into repeating the answer whether it's about equine dentistry, equine nutrition, or horsemanship, it's the same story over and over and over and over again. But I just assume that one, nobody's told them. So I've been given an opportunity to tell them that they're actually listening. They've asked the question, therefore you're, they're requesting the answer. I'm not forcing it down their throat. And two, uh, I've got an opportunity to say it in maybe a different way that they can understand that maybe uh, you or anybody else has said it and they just aren't grabbing onto it. So yeah, every time it's an opportunity. What is your favorite dinosaur? Yeah. How come you aren't asking me what, what's my favorite type of music? I mean, you got movies and books <laughs> uh, that'll blow. And that you'll never guess. The dinosaur? <laughs> no, it's not rap. Oh, oh, music. What's that? Music. Yeah. <laughs> dinosaur. I, I think triceratops. Me too. Um, no, 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 no. I, I take that back. Uh, sorry. It's the pterodactyl. I got the teased mix up, the pterodactyl. Because every time I walk out the door from my house, I look up and I'm like, are there any pterodactyls out here about to come down, swoop, pick me up and carry me away? And I'm so grateful that they're extinct. So, yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> I, I look up the same way, but I'm looking for wasps. 
I don't know. I must put off a pheromone that, that wasps are very attracted to. So I'm, I'm in constant fear of wasps. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite kind of music? Go ahead and let it out the box now. Well, what, what do you think? I mean, you've known me a couple of times. I'm going to say you're a blues guy, something like that, or maybe like. Uh, well, let's stop, stop, stop. Why do I, why do I look like a blues guy? I don't know. I could just see you driving your Tesla with your cowboy hat on, some Blues Brothers sunglasses, and just just jamming to it, just going down the road. It's it's my favorite genre, blues. How did you guess? Oh. <laughs> and the blues goes from, I mean, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, uh, right now, uh, Chris Stone, Ingram, uh, Kingfish. I just uh, found a new artist out of uh, United Kingdom, Danny um, Wild, W-I-L-D-E. She is amazing. And I, I like, just yesterday, I'm, I'm, I'm in this funk. Yes, I get in funks. I told you I was emotional. And I turned on a, a Kingfish song and I'm like whooping and hollering and just, I'm letting out everything because the blues, when it's a three beat gate, it's just like a canter. When you get going that da da dum da da dum da da dum I'm just like, it's, it's cathartic. It just purges me of everything. So yeah, the blues. I learned when I was in my mid twenties, I had a job that was very challenging emotionally because of the guy I was working for. And I figured out that country music was not conducive to a good mood. Uh, and I started listening to a lot more rock and roll and it, it, it made me a lot happier. It really did. Uh, rock and roll is blues. There's a whole album of, um, Willie Nelson's Blues. It's just fantastic. Clint Black had a couple of great blues. It's just blues is a rhythm. You know, that's all it is. It's just been around since the beginning. Our last uh, short answer question. Have you ever had a UFO encounter? Yes, absolutely. My wife and I have both seen them. And it's just amazing. And it was up in Ithaca and the Ithaca Journal, which is the newspaper up there, actually reported it. And one of my clients uh, spearheaded a whole group to follow up. There were um, five or six bright lights and they're all for flying in formation. I'll never forget where I was looking up in the sky, seeing uh, this formation come in and then it stopped and then immediately shot the other direction. I mean, 180 degree turn and boom, gone. And I was like, Oh, goodness. Yeah. No, uh, my wife and I have both seen UFOs. Unidentified flying objects, you know, whether from Martians or whatever, I don't care. They're just nothing we know about. So, yeah. I had a similar one. And just like you, I, I could tell you exactly where I was at at that moment. And there was just a little pin of light about the size of a star. And it went from this corner of the world to that corner of the world and zigged back and then then disappeared in the blink of an eye. And I know nothing man-made moves that fast. So who knows? Yeah. Have you seen the space station go by? Mm -hmm. Yeah. International. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so amazing. I, I was bringing the garbage pails back up five in the morning, look up and there it goes. It goes. It goes pretty quick, doesn't it? Not as quick as the UFO, like, but yeah. It's steady in one direction. UFOs faster than you can blink and different directions like that cool we yeah. have so much in common man yeah. we're going to be taken away by space aliens <laughs> yeah i'm not saying i've been probed or anything but yeah <laughs> seen a light anyway
Well, I'm going to award you 117 points, which is the high score on this game so far. So, congratulations. Oh, wow. So, you right. know, my wife keeps saying I'm a winner, so it must be true. That, that is enough for a, a coupon of 50% off of a unicorn, valid wherever unicorns are sold. So, we'll get that in the mail to you this morning. Okay. All right. Appreciate that. You are first and foremost an equine dentist so why don't you tell us a little bit about the basis of your practice and how you go about things like many things in life you don't know you don't wake up in the morning and find out that you're going to be you know this or that it just happens so the brief story is you know, here I am, a college dropout three times. Why do I even bother going to vet school? And now I am in vet school through the process of luck and hard work and the efforts of my wife making sure I stay focused. And now I found a mentor. And his name is Dr. Jack Lowe. And he's done a lot of uh, work up there, associate professor, retired. And he said to me one morning, Jeff, come here. I want to show you how to uh, float horse's teeth. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I uh, go down the stall and he promptly takes his hand and sticks it inside the horse's mouth with that any speculum. And he shows me how it's done. And I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of scary, but if he says I can do it, and I just saw with my own eyes, a man can do this. So I stuck my hand in and the first time I felt teeth of a horse even though my anatomy class taught me the teeth went back that far in a horse, when I was able to stick it inside a living, breathing horse and feel it with my fingers, I was hooked. I mean, talk about landing a fish with one jerk of the pole. He had me and I pulled my hand out and I was turning to talk to him. I was so freaking amazed that I forgot to take my hand out all the way and the horse bit it and boy, did that hurt. Oh, very first time I did it. And then he showed me how to float. So that was between my junior and senior year in vet school, third or fourth year, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so throughout my fourth year, I went out and started floating horses' teeth on the weekends because it's a great way to put you know a couple of bucks in my pocket. And um, somehow I was able to grab a bottle of uh, Rompum and I would go out there and I would medicate a lot of horses because it made it a lot easier because I didn't have any horsemanship skills because they don't teach you horsemanship in vet school. And uh, even though I've been out with horses for five years, full-time working with thoroughbreds, I had a pretty good sense of how to work around a horse, uh, but now I was doing something that was different. And the first 10 years I'm plodding away, uh, I made it part of my practice and I said, okay, this is you know good. So I do most of my floats in the winter when it's so cold, but nobody's doing anything in upstate New York. Then the breeding season would come and I would have too much of the breeding and then the lameness and the show and the summer. And finally, in the fall and winter, I'd run my uh, floating specials. At some point, I was doing so many floats in my practice that the New York State Equine Practice Committee, which is a group of equine veterinarians in New York, would get together and they would advise the veterinary board on equine related matters. And I was uh, honored to be asked onto that board. And they asked me because they knew in the state that I did so much uh, dentistry work. And they wanted my input because in the state of New York, there were a lot of non-veterinarians floating teeth. And they wanted to know whether this should be something we should pursue or not. And half the board, there's like 
I think eight of us, half the board uh, said it absolutely has to be a veterinarian to float horse's teeth. The other half said, if you're a really good veterinarian, you don't have time to float teeth. <laughs> I'll never forget that line. I know the man who said it. He says, and then, and then there's me who's spending a lot of time floating teeth. And I thought I was a pretty good veterinarian in so many other aspects, but I knew how important this was. And I knew how many you have to do to get good at it. So in 1998, uh, I decided to sell my practice. I started working for another uh, equine veterinarian just in, in transition. And finally, after a year of that, uh, I said, that's it. In 1998, I limited my practice to equine dentistry. But at that point, New York, Connecticut went uh, with no, uh, you don't have to be a vet. New York followed it. I believe Vermont and Maryland had already said that. And all the other states required you to be a veterinarian. And then this uh, association equine dentists, um, it's, <laughs> did you want the long answer or the short answer? That's okay. I'll, I'll pull you back on track in just a minute. Go ahead. There is a um, bull rider uh, who's a champion bull rider in Oklahoma. And he went out and you know, he retired and he decided to start floating horses teeth. Well, the problem with this bull rider was he grabbed the bottle rompum, went out there, was injecting horses and drugging them. And that pissed off the uh, veterinarians. That that just was like not good. By the way, can I do a sidebar? Sure, sure. I was taking pictures uh, when I was a student at Cornell of how to load a horse in a trailer that's difficult. And um, the, the guys who were there had actually put a rope around the girth of this horse and up between his front legs through his halter and through the front of the trailer. And they're pretty much just, you know, using a winch to get the horse in. And that mare lifted her tail and she was so mad and fighting so hard that her urine flew out 12 feet. And I had got a picture of it with my camera. Uh, and so that's where the term pissed off comes from. <laughs> I thought you might want to know. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, better to be pissed off than to be pissed on. So. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, that's happened too. If you've ever <laughs> delivered a foal. But anyway, um, so they arrested this uh, bull rider turned uh, equine dentist in Oklahoma. And they uh, charged him with practicing veteran medicine without a license and actually put him in jail. And the whole state of Oklahoma, the horse owners got hopping mad because he was a hero. So they all uh, came to the, the uh, Capitol and shut down the Capitol. I mean, this actually happened. You can look it up. I mean, forget, you know, any other insurrection that might have occurred. They shut down the Capitol and, and said, you have to reverse this thing. You have to change the law, which they did. And they expunged his, uh, his uh, sentence. So he became a free man. And the state of Oklahoma, if you are uh, a member uh, of the International Association of Equine Dentists, the IAED, and have passed their exam, then you can practice uh, dentistry in the state of Oklahoma. In, in addition, you can um, go to a veterinarian and, and take drugs, uh, medications, and uh, transport them and inject them into a horse that you're working on, state of Oklahoma. That's where that came from. And of course, that just infuriated the veterinarians. But that's what happened there. It happened in Texas. I think it's Wisconsin. They did that as well. 
Florida changed their laws and, and Virginia. So in these states, with the exception of Florida, these other states, if you're a member of the IAD and pass their, their exams, and I think there's another organization other than the IAD. I, I don't believe in either one of these organizations because they promote um, theories that are wrong. But um, they, uh, you can now practice uh, dentistry in these states without um, being a veterinarian. In the state of Florida, uh, without any help from me, nobody contacted me uh, except one veterinarian who said, this is what we're doing. What, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you, you haven't given me enough information. He says, well, we've already done it. But in the state of Florida, as long as you don't use power tools and you don't use drugs, if you just use hand floats, you're allowed to float teeth in Florida. Well, the problem with all these states is that there are no enforcement of the laws. So there are plenty of non-veterinarians down here using power tools, even though it's written in the law that you can't. And, you know, they have a, another veterinarian who goes around and injects the horse for them. So the horse is medicated, usually sedated, which I love to tell you the difference between sedation and medication. And finally, the state of Washington arrested a guy and uh, their attorney hired me to be the upper, um, expert witness for the defendant. Uh, so I gave that, I was deposed by the assistant DA and he still uh, got uh, convicted and served a sentence or whatever. But then the state of Washington asked me to come out, uh, somebody out there, and I ended up getting my license at the state of Washington. I was the only person in the state of Washington who was a licensed veterinarian who didn't automatically truck the horses, and I continued to use uh, hand floats. And that became so wildly successful that three months out of every year, I actually spent in the state of Washington floating teeth. And I made great relationships with everybody, but due to circumstances completely out of my control, I had to cut back my practice and it just made the most sense to say goodbye to the state of Washington. And I feel bad because I have yet to date with my equine dentistry school, uh, have any veterinarian step up and say, I'd like to learn that. And to be able to offer my clients both the power equipment and the hand floating using horsemanship techniques, I think it'd be a brilliant business move for anybody in any of these states. If you're a veterinarian, they only allow veterinarians learn how to do this because my clients did not want the power tools. They've had so many horrible experiences with it. So here I am floating teeth since 98 full time. 75,000 horses done. That's, that's a pretty yeah. incredible number. It really is. And if I showed you the data, it's accurate from 98. I've recorded everyone since 98, but from 83 to 98, uh, I estimated, you know, kind of uh, underestimated the best I could, like 1983, how many horses did I actually float on those weekends? Who knows, 100? So if you take out 10,000 from that, it's still 65,000 horses, yeah. you know, it's still pretty a lot. So so what is your your basic, I call you, I've got a horse for you to float. You're in the area. You come by. You want to run us through just just kind of the basis of of what you do and the equipment you use and what you do and don't use, I guess. Well, the derogatory expression that other dentists say, especially the veterinarians, is I'm the guy who has two floats in a bucket, which is on the surface. It's actually three floats in a bucket, but um I also bring with me skills that they just don't seem to care to uh, 
elaborate on. So when you don't have a skill, if you're not able to pole vault, let's say, uh, this is a new thing. I've never said this before, so I hope this works out. Sure. If you decide to pole vault, and this is uh, actually a reflection of um, Dr. Andresen, who uh, just died at 82 years old, who's still practicing. He's pole vaulting until his late 70s. God bless him. Um, sorely missed the North Fork of Long Island. But um, pole vaulting is to me crazy. Who'd want to run with this long pole stick? I would miss, you know, <laughs> and stick it in that little hole and lift your body up over a bar that's like a thousand feet in the air. I mean, who would want to do that? There are some people who can do it. And just because they can do it and you can't do it, you shouldn't go out and say, well, all pole vaulters are crazy. They're just, you know, it's just asinine. What's the purpose? Why do it that way? You're not experiencing this and that, you know? So uh, Dr. Andresen obviously had a different uh, uh, appeal for this and he could do it and did it well and held the uh, top spot in his age bracket. And others of his age were competing against him. So when it comes to floating teeth, I decided that I would continue the traditional approach of using my hand to feel. And I thought that that made more sense than using my eyeballs to see. Because I'll walk up, uh, not to you, but let's say to a woman, and I'll look her straight in the eyes and I'll say, okay, I see you. I see your face. Now I'm going to reach behind you and I'm going to feel, <laughs> there's my hand, I'm going to feel behind your head to see that you've got your hair in a ponytail or a bun and you're using a scrunchie or a clip. I can identify all these stuff just using my fingers to feel. And when I feel inside the horse's mouth, I can feel ulcerations, I can feel decay, I can feel uh, soft gums, I can bring my fingers out and smell stale or an anaerobic infection, an aerobic affection, uh, fermenting or, um, uh, a decay. So I can feel, I can, and capophagy, of course, the stink of horses that eat their own manure. But I can tell all these things and I can tell so much. I can be able to identify these things. And then I, I can do something about the things I can do about, uh, which is my biggest complaint because everyone says you need a light source and you need a uh, visualization to identify all these uh, pathologies in the horse's mouth. I said, great, so you've identified them, you can see them, you can record it, that's great. What are you gonna do about it? And they all kind of come to a stop and they say, well, we're gonna watch it or we're going to extract the tooth because everyone wants to pull the tooth, air quotes on pull the tooth. And I find that that's it, it, pulling the tooth is like the last resort. It's such a finale final thing. You, you can't put the tooth back in. I just went to uh, an older pony I'd never seen before in my life. And it was new to the farm. And I stuck my hand in and it had a split tooth, a broken um, cheek tooth. And this pony is like, gosh, you know, it hadn't been bothering me. But now that you mentioned it, sure, it'd be nice to have out. I said, great. So I threw in my forceps. It was a fourth tooth back on the upper left side on the, on the palate side, which is the most common place to get a fractured tooth. And I just placed my uh, forceps on it and through manipulation, pulled it out. And the horse said, oh, thanks. No medication required. I mean, and yet other veterinarians would say, oh, we're going to have to schnock the horse down. We're going to punch the whole tooth out. And I'm like, no, you don't have to do this. And I've done so many this way. It's just crazy. Can I sure. say one more thing? Sure. 
why did the tooth break? And nobody addresses that. And why in the same so, spot on a routine basis? Seems yep. like there's a pattern there and patterns always require investigation, don't they? <laughs> don't they? Yes. So why did the yep. tooth break? Well, technically, the uh, pulp chamber, which is basically a part of the tooth, and there's five of them in these cheek teeth, get uh, decay. And the decay works down much like a, if you have a log that you split for firewood, you put a wedge down the middle of the log and it splits apart. That's what this decay does. And it bends it. And this tooth I took out, you could see it had been bent for a long time because the base of the tooth before the fracture site was curved. It, it just had a curve to it. How did it do a curve? A curve. <laughs> and, and so it was like, start to bend. And then also goes snap and it comes off. And it's usually not painful to the horse, which is just crazy. But what caused the decay in the first place? And nobody's addressing that. And of course, decay in human teeth is so simple. You have an altered microbiome in the horses, in the human mouth. They discovered this in 1932. They discovered that uh, children in Brooklyn who ate uh, oatmeal had a much higher incidence of dental caries or cavities. And they took all the children, 1932, off of oatmeal and their dental caries stopped. Some of them actually repaired themselves. This was fantastic news. So here it is, you know, 2021, and we're almost at the 100 year mark, you know, 90 years away from this message. And Everyone's still eating oatmeal, you know, and we're feeding oats to horses. We're feeding grains and high sugars and it's causing a dysbiosis, which is a actual term that was started in France. And I just heard a podcast. Uh, the man's name is hard to remember, uh, who's the first Amer American uh, physician, functional medicine doctor to use the term dysbiosis. And now everybody's using it. It means that the biome, the microbes that are in a certain area of the gut, starting in your mouth, going to the back, has been altered. And the number one reason for it to be altered is the food we put in there. And these high sugar content foods are creating a different microbiome in the mouth. And other things are causing a different microbiome. Texas A&M did a study where they flushed out the mouth of a horse and they identified 700 individual bacteria. And in humans, it's, I think, somewhere between 700 and 1,200 individual bacteria. It's like the Smith family, the Jones family, the, you know, whatever family, the White family, and one Prevacox, one dose of one Prevacox wiped out a whole family of bacteria in the horse's mouth. That's, that's just mind blowing. So we're adding these medications all the time. We're, we're sedating horses left and right, not having any clue on what it does to the microbiome of the gut, let alone anything else to the horse. And we're not using the skills necessary to get through uh, the horse's fear or nervousness, anxiety, uh, or pain. And, and, and so we just assume that it's better to drug a horse. And it's just like putting all the kids in class on, um, you know, drugs to calm them down. Uh, you're not looking at the major issue, the reason for it. So, and horse trainers do the same thing. I'll just ace him. You know, he's been on solid So let's just ace him and then go out and, and like, do you realize what you're doing to the horse? You know? Yeah, I'm, so, I do not ride horses on sedation. I've never, never been a fan of that. That seems like a recipe for disaster to me, for sure. 
you had mentioned about the bacteria. One of the, the startling factoids that I gained in college when I took bacteriology is that there are more non-human cells, so bacteria and other, other organisms in your body than there are cells that are you. And I, I just, that was one of those shocking kind of things that most people have no concept of how important that symbiotic relationship is and how dependent upon those bacteria you are. Everybody's scared of E. coli, but you and I both have E. coli in our body right now, and so does every other animal walking around. It's just and one viruses. Yeah. And viruses and fungi and parasites. And we're all living happily together. And the more stress you put yourself through, the more uncomfortable they get, the more sick you become. So true. And, and don't forget, the mitochondria have their own DNA. And the mitochondria, did, did anybody tell you how mitochondria came around? Uh, well, I listen to your podcast, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the mitochondria, the furnaces, are the en energy producers that are inside every cell. There's anywhere from one to 10,000 mitochondria per cell, depending on how much energy, how many factories of energy you need, how many power plants you need. Uh, the retina has a bunch. Your prefrontal cortex has a bunch. Your heart has a bunch more mitochondria than any other organ in the body. And the organ that has the most mitochondria are, believe it or not, the ovaries. And that's just fascinating. And what's e even more interesting is when the male uh, sperm penetrates the, the egg and to create the zygote from which the fetus is formed, uh, all the mitochondria, the sperm is in the tail and the tail gets jettisoned. So all the mitochondria that you have, have come from your mother, which is just fascinating. Uh, they have proved that there's some, there's some other mitochondria in there that might not come from your mother, but you know, a high, high percentage, well into the 90s is from your mother. And these mitochondria, date back to when we had methane for an atmosphere. And, and as that methane started to change over to what we have now, which is called air, uh, the air is about 20% oxygen and about 78% nitrogen. And as oxygen crept up from zero to three to 10 to 12 to 17%, our bodies are saying, we don't know how to take care of this. We don't know what to do with this oxygen. I mean, everything seems to need oxygen to run, but we're horrible at making energy from oxygen. And over on the side was this little bacteria says, look, I'm really good at making energy from oxygen. I'm just horrible at finding the food I need. Would you like to shack up together? I mean, that's the number one reason people get together, right? Is to split the rent. That's right. And so the mitochondria moved into the cell and they start to live symbiotically. So our purpose of our mouth is to throw in raw materials. And that goes down into this uh, refinery that we call our digestive tract. And in that digestive tract are enzymes and bacteria that break down all this raw material into food components. I call them uh, sugars, fats, proteins, minerals are in there, water, and I throw in air. Nobody else does, but I do, but whatever you want to think. And, yeah. and then they take, yeah, well, they say, well, the air goes to the lungs. I get it. But all these chemical, all these literal chemicals that your refinery makes out of the raw materials are shoved through this one cell layer membrane called the gut uh, lining, the endothelium of the gut. It's one cell layer thick. And 
it comes to the other side and it's carried to the cell. And when it gets to the cell, the cell starts to take all these um, chemicals, other people call them nutrients, and I just call them chemicals. And through that chemical, it feeds the bacteria or the mitochondria that's inside the cell with oxygen. They give us a spark of energy. And that goes to make our muscles work and our brain think and everything else to, to actually occur. And without that, mitochondria were dead. And this is why people die, whether it's a gunshot, a car wreck, poison, uh, suffocation. It's all basically the, the amount of oxygen that gets the mitochondria shuts down and you've got about two minutes. And without that mitochondria constantly working, there's no more life. It's somebody's pulled the plug. It's over. It's basically a lack of oxygen. That's if the coronavirus so, doesn't get you first, right? Well, interestingly, the coronavirus actually messes up ACE. And ACE, oh, please, angiotensin, uh, rather enzyme. Why can't I remember the C in ACE? And that enzyme is so important to activate angiotensin to keep our blood pressure correct. And those ACE um, enzyme is throughout your body. And the receptor on the cells are called ACE2 receptors, and they are in every endothelium, not just the lungs. It's in your gut, it's in your brain. And when the coronavirus attaches to that, it makes the ability to create this enzyme, this ACE2 enzyme, uh, it's, it's no longer there. Why can't I remember the C? ACE, uh, brain fart. You hear about <laughs> blood pressure medicine being an ACE2 inhibitor, right? The same sort yeah. of mechanism involved there. Yep. Okay. There you go. Well, so that's how that virus works. We, we took a little bit of a journey there. I, I guess what I was hinting at with the dentals. So you use a Kevlar sleeve, right? To protect yourself that you have specially designed. Oh, you don't anymore? I used to. Okay. Uh, it was made for, uh, auto mechanics who uh, would work around hot mufflers and that's what it's created for. So I was just buying them by the uh, box load. Unfortunately, when Melissa started working with me, her arms are not as wide as mine. And uh, because she's not as tall as I am, she would have her skinny arms up here and the water would just drain down and go into armpit. She couldn't stand it. And then uh, I started this dentistry school and almost all the people who came were uh, skinny, armed girls and guys, uh, except for one guy. And so I just stopped using it just to be, you know, so the rest of the people would think they didn't need it. And then now I've just gone back to using a neoprene wrap around my left hand to help uh, protect against some cuts that I get. But now you can do it without any aids at all. And we had touched on sedation. I'm just trying to get the overview. Basically, here are the points I was trying to get to everybody. He doesn't use sedation except in about 7% of cases. Is that correct? It's actually 3% year after year after year. And if you're not into percentages, just take 100 horses out of 100. I'll do 97 without any medication. And three, I'll medicate. And I use the word medicate instead of sedate. And that's a big, big big difference. All right. So sedation is whiskey. All right. So Daniel, if I want to ask you out on a date, <laughs> sorry. Our wives might have objections, but hey, let's go for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the point is on a date, if you don't have any skills um, building a relationship, ah. 
You'll just get the person drunk. Mm -hmm. All right. So you just get them drunk and then they really don't have a say. You don't even know if they're enjoying the date or not. But if you're going on a date and you have a whopping headache and you really want to go on the date, you like the person, you're going to ask for a pain medication. And so the medications I use are targeted pain medications uh, that kill the pain inside the horse's mouth, which is so important because almost every horse says, oh, my gosh, thanks. Go to work, doc. I feel so much better. I mean, without exception, you can just see them say, ah, and they're not with their nose on the ground. They're not struggling to stand up. They're basically standing there saying, I don't have pain anymore. Dormosidan, detomidine is a classic sedative that has absolutely no pain-killing powers in the mouth, none. And people use dormosidan or detotamine all the time to um, sedate these horses with dentistry, and then they keep fighting. So they're given a second, even a third dose, and they fall down. Well, that's because they're not targeting the, with the appropriate medication for the problem. Take the pain away, the horse will stand there. Now, for those horses that are actually afraid, and you and I have seen horses that are afraid, they just they have this huge block. I'm a man, I'm a vet, you know, I've had bad experiences, you know, I can't tolerate this. That's where I use a, an anti-anxiety or what they call an anxiolytic. Uh, the best example would be Valium. Valium works great in a horse, uh, diazepam and midazolam. Those are the three you, you can use and you get in there and it dissociates that anxiety from what's happening. And that allows the other painkillers to actually kick in and do their job. And what's interesting is I'll use these um, anxiolytics maybe two, three times on a horse. And by the time the fourth time comes, I say, come on in, doc. We're friends. This is good. You know, the pain is gone. Their anxiety is gone. And they no longer need to be medicated. It's so fascinating to see. And the other medication I use is a potent uh, morphine-like drug, uh, butorphanol, uh, trade name Torbjesic, and there's others. So it's a combination of uh, two different painkillers, xylazine, which is wampum, which does give a little bit of sedation. That's not bad, just a little bit. It is also a potent painkiller for the lining of the gut from your lips to your anus. This is why every horse that gets colic usually gets a dose of wampum just to calm the pain down. Then you, I hit it with a morphine-like drug. And then I, if I have to, I'll add midazolam, which I might use one dose a month, maybe. So long answer for your short question, isn't it? Medicate, don't sedate. And forget tranking. Forget the word tranquilizer. That's acepromazine or reserpine. And you don't want to use tranquilizer for dentistry. So, so do you find even though these sedation, I, I don't have a lot of experience with sedation other than, than when a vet has, you know, we're castrating a horse or, or those big sort of things. I've always assumed that there was such a disassociation that there couldn't be, I would want to use the word training involved, but, but that they, they couldn't then reassociate. So there wouldn't be an improvement over time, but you see with, with proper medications that there is, they are actually in a learning environment and there is a change that occurs over time. Yeah, the uh, dissociative, dissociating anesthetics would be ketamine. Um, and that's why you don't have access to it as a controlled substance. <clears throat> that basically takes the person's memory out of the picture. 
So you can do whatever you want. And then when their memory comes back, they don't have any recollection of it. That's why it's called a date rape drug. And this is why uh, most people have it, keep it on a lock and key and will guard it with their life. So you aren't going to use that for training purposes. Uh, the tranquilizers actually do work. Uh, Reserpine has been around for a long time. And you would give a very small dose to a young horse that's never been broken uh, or trained uh, to saddle, who's just been taken out of the field and is a little wild. And that's a long term. It can last for several days, maybe a week. If you give too much of it, they have profound diarrhea and get really, really sick. But that drug works. Uh, they do have a pill form, which I don't think works at all. The injectable seems to work really well, but it's really hard to get. But that's that's a good use of a tranquilizer. You have a horse that's taken from a field and you have like a few days to take care of it. And I know you, you're a champion of these um, of the breaking uh, this wild horses into stuff, into uh, a rideable horse. And that takes horsemanship skills. And I get that. Uh, but if you've got employees who are not that good and you're breaking a dozen yearlings for the racetrack and you give a serpine, they keep their coordination. And I agree with you. I would never want to ride a medicated horse. But then again, I don't want to ride a horse that is going to twist and turn and try to get me off for any purpose either. So that is a tool that can be used in the right hands by a good trainer, of course, that's a wide open definition, isn't it? Uh, but ACE, ACE promising doesn't work. It works good if you give it to them before the event uh, as a pre-medication for anesthesia. I think it's been used a lot, but uh, I've thrown out a bottle ACE of the two that I bought in my career. I've thrown one out and I've, uh, and I threw and I, and I sold one. So I tell you what, this, this is pinging all, I didn't really plan on talking about this, but these medications are bringing up a lot of horse trader stories in my mind. So, so like Ace Promazine has a very telltale sign in about half of all horses. Uh, it used to be used in sales, but it's pretty obvious to tell if it's given to certain. You want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't have enough experience to say other than um, it's got a 30-day withdrawal. So if you even put a drop of Ace in there, you can't compete for 30 days. It's got, it's hangs around for a long time. Yeah. Well, but but it causes uh, relaxation of the penis, right? So, oh yeah, yeah. Well, like if you ever had a horse it, sale and you says, notice the gelding come through the ring and he's dropped, then uh, he probably has sort of a glassy look to his eye, and he's probably not going to be as calm as he is right now in about two or three hours. You know, it's interesting about Ace. If you pull out that package insert and read it, it recommends not to give to male horses. Because the male horse has a muscle who's, I'm going to butcher the name, uh, the retractor penile muscle or something like that. And with the use of acepromazine, it sometimes paralyzes it. When that happens, the penis never gets retracted up into its sheath. When that happens, it becomes exposed to the environment. When that happens, it gets like destroyed and it has to be amputated. And most people don't see it. Most veterinarians give a ace uh, with rompum torbogesic. They call rompum ace torbogesic, the rat shot. And they think this is great. I personally as a veterinarian will never use ace on a male horse because it says right in there, what happens if you have penile paralysis? You know, you're open to lawsuit. Well, I know as a veterinarian, I'm legal to use a drug in any way, shape or form, as long as I've got a good reason for it, even off label. But um, why would I want to risk that? But 
just about every other vet out there will give ACE all the time. And you have the granules and stuff. And, and I've never seen uh, penile paralysis, but I certainly have read reports on it. So just keep that in mind. Why on earth would you want to ace a horse? I mean, what happened to training, Daniel? Why aren't you training these people? I've, I've seen it used a lot for vets when they do the annual. They'll give them ACE and they'll do the dental and then they'll clean the penis to do the sheath cleaning kind of all in one. Uh, that's probably where I've seen it used more. But I know when I was when I was starting 25 years ago at all of this stuff, going to horse sales and stuff, they would they would squirt a cc of ace in the mouth. And every once in a while, you were going to see a gelding go through the ring with the drop. And they have that kind of characteristic glassy look to their eye. Also, with a mare, I guess you don't you have to just look for the eye. But Anyway, I think that's become well enough known that that uh, they can't get away with. It. And I also think getting your hand veterinarians are a lot stricter about who they give a a, a syringe full of <laughs> tranquilizers or, or sedation stuff to now. That that's that's been cut down on a lot more than what it used to be. It used to be every farrier would have a couple bottles in the back of their truck and so forth. And I don't think that's nearly as common as it, it used to be anymore. Yeah, uh, thank thank the lawyers for that. You know, yeah. the veterinarian is liable for selling that vial uh, for off-label use by a non-veterinarian. If it is a legend drug uh, or drug that has uh, a, a license that says uh, on use by or on the order of a licensed veterinarian, it means that I can give you, Daniel, a syringe of this stuff to use on horse named Joe, and you can use it on Joe. But to give you a vial to use at your whim for any horse is illegal because of something called a client-patient veterinary relationship. And that's been drilled into our heads now. And all the young vets coming out of school know that they have to have that direct relationship. And if you don't have that, you can't be prescribing anything. So the vet has to actually see the horse and say, okay, I agree with your assessment. This is what we need to do and appropriately give the drug. That's the law. So for me to sell you a bottle of ACE so you can use on a difficult horse is just illegal, period. And a lot of those drugs can have bad reactions and veterinarians also have bottles of uh, other chemicals that can reverse such things just in case that happens. And the average person out there wouldn't have that kind of a thing. So you, you could really get yourself into a lot of trouble. With, with some of that stuff. Yeah, veterinarians inject a lot of horses. You know, a vet who's been around for 10 years has injected thousands of horses and has a good understanding. Like people ask me, so what's your, what's your dose for uh, working on a horse? And I'm like, well, it depends on the horse. It depends on so many things. Well, how do you know? I don't know. I just get to the horse. I can feel the horse. It's energy. Uh, I know what the problem is going. And so I'll adjust my dose. And I usually go under because you can always add more. So that's how I look at it. It's an art form. And I guess we are getting into a lot of uh, vet talk here. So do, do you, you feel like a disclaimer of you're not their veterinarian is warranted? Or are we good? Or Yeah, uh, it's always um, I'm here as just a source of information. I'm not your veterinarian. You have to keep your conversation of your horse and what you want to give between you and your veterinarian. You have to trust your veterinarian. On that note, there's a lot of people who don't trust their veterinarians. And that's the shocking part. 
the amount of veterinarians that are working on horses is decreasing so rapidly that our parent organization, American Association of Equine Practitioners, has now put together a think tank of uh, two veterinarians to address this problem of attrition of horse vets. And so, oops, my dog just came in. My dog is going to leave. Uh, That's okay. We're animal friendly. No big deal. Yeah, I'm animal friendly too. I'd stay out. That's so, yeah, okay. I was talking to my wife, ha, ha, uh, who I've been married to for 44 years. Same woman, go figure. Why she puts up with me, who knows? Veterinarians are in a tough spot right now because uh, equine veterinarians really want to do a good job and want to be held in the highest regard by horse owners. But then they start to do things that horse owners don't want or they don't trust or a diagnosis goes sideways and they don't get the results they're expecting. And then the veterinarian doesn't have great people skills, communication skills, and things fly apart. And uh, I find that the older the veterinarian, like Dr. Andresen, the uh, better and more loved he is. And the younger veterinarians are coming out, they're trying to do a great job, but their brain is swollen with so much minute information that they don't know exactly how to go from point A to point B without taking a hundred different stops. And, and you as a horseman say, well, doc, I mean, it's just, you know, a cut. Can you just, you know, put some sutures in it? Well, no, because we've got all these, you know, it could be cushionoid, you know, and you're like, and they don't even know what Cushing's is. I did have one of those bad experiences. I had a vet clinic that I was using. It was two ladies. And one of them was the one I normally use was pregnant and she was having a troubled pregnancy. So she was on vet rest, bed rest. And uh, they hired another young lady that I'm, I'm guessing was about two weeks out of vet school. And I had an appointment to castrate a stallion and she came out and she forgot to glove up. <laughs> she didn't huh? sterilize her tools. I mean, every step of the way I'm stopping her and going, Hey, don't you want to uh, maybe do this? And you could tell she was in that state. She just had so much going on. It might've been the first time she was ever going to castrate one all by herself. And, huh? and uh, I felt for her, but at the same time, I, I, I felt like I needed to speak up a couple of times to make sure we didn't. I would have loved <laughs> to be that first time vet at your place. Because you probably nurtured her, mentored her more than anybody else had. But what about the lady owner who has just bought a horse, doesn't know anything about it? You know, I was in their backyard and she walks in and that owner is of no help to the veterinarian. And the veterinarian's no help to anybody. And it's a disaster. But I will I'll tell you a story. Sure. You know a story. Absolutely. I'm fresh out of vet school i mean just fresh out and i haven't started my own practice i basically had i on my first day of vet school on day of graduation i was going to my first horse call past my graduating class all drinking beer and eating cake and i said i'm not really into that and there was um, a veterinarian about 45 minutes away who needed some help and he did cattle mostly dairy cows. And so I said, okay, I, I need money. So I became a dairy cattle uh, expert overnight and me, I'm a horseman. So you don't want me showing up on your farm to do any dairy work. And uh, 
one of my first nights, uh, I would go to this man's house. He had a wife and kids and I would sleep on his couch all night long. And any emergency that came in, he would answer the phone. He'd come and wake me up and send me on my way. So about eight o'clock at night, I ended up going out to this call and keep in mind that my, my boss was usually in bed by 8 p.m. Because he would get up at four in the morning to go milk the cows before he'd go on his rounds. So uh, he sends me out to this dairyman and he's got all these cows in their stanchions. I'd say there's probably 80 head in there. And he's watching down this one cow and he says, uh, she's having trouble, you know, delivering. I know she's trying to deliver a calf. So I go in there, reach in. I said, this is a huge, huge calf. I don't know how I knew it was huge, but I knew it was huge. And she just couldn't push this thing out. And so I said, I need to call the boss. So I go on call and he's like half asleep. What? I said, this cow needs a cesarean. And he says, all right. And I told him why, why I was going to do about it. He says, all right, good luck. Click. <laughs> how many freaking cesareans had I ever done in my life? Zero. <laughs> and, and I'm like, all right, well, and I forgot to tell you that in this dairy barn of 80 cows, there's probably a dozen incandescent light bulbs at 60 watts. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's this dim yellow light throughout the barn. And I go back to the dairyman and I said, yeah, uh, Doug agrees. Um, time to do cesarean. He says, okay. Well, if you need some help, I'll be inside. <laughs> and I'm alone. <laughs> There's nobody there. It's dark. And this cow is like, Ugh. so I was thrown into the fire. And um, I did the you know incision down the side of the cow, exteriorized the uterus, cut into the uterus, pulled out this I'm going to say 100, 120 pound. I mean, it's just a huge bull calf. And, it, and you know, he couldn't even hold it because slimy and it's heavy. And just I just kind of broke its fall to the side. And I was so pleased because the, the bull calf was alive. It was breathing. I was, felt so good. And then I looked up and I said, oh, crap, I got to put it back in and sew it all back up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, trial by fire is great. But back then, I'd gone through cesarean sections in my mind. I knew how to do it. And I knew the organization that I needed. And it sounds like your young veterinarian was going through all the things, but she's got her head filled with so much more. Mm-hmm. How can they figure out these simple things? Yep. And I feel it. for them. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think these. Looking so far I down the road, these, at four steps ahead, they forget the, the put your gloves on. You know, that's already taken care of most of the time. So. Yep. We tried to start, uh, I'm one of the board members of the Louisiana Equine Council, and one of my pet projects a few years ago was to start a low-cost castration clinic here in the state and paired up with LSU Vet School. Uh, I noticed that some of these Facebook groups and stuff, there were just tons of three-year-old grade stallions that were unbroke but would make a great kid's horse, and it just floors me off you know to me a great horse should never be a stallion in the first place just because of the the value and so forth but 
apparently there were a lot of people that couldn't afford the 150 bucks to have these things castrated. So we started doing about 20 of them a year uh, with LSU vet school. And I thought it was a great thing because I bet most of those students probably witness two or three and may get to help on one. But if we give them yeah. a whole other horse to castrate, that's, you know, they just doubled their actual experience before they get out into the world by themselves. So win-win yep. for everybody. Good on you. I, I'm so uh, grateful, grateful for you, Daniel, for doing something like that. Well, it's, it's since yeah. fizzled out, but anyway, we, we did it for a little while. So uh, I'll tell a story. You were just telling about the birthing process there. When I was in college, I worked for an older gentleman that had a bunch of cows and some horses and his wife had some peacocks. And I was just kind of the, the young manual labor helping to take care of everything. And he had a bunch of Hereford cows and one of his old cows was due big as a house and she had gone septic where, you know, we were expecting her to calve and it had been two or three days and now you're kind of smelling her a little and it's looking pretty nasty back there. So we get her up and, and we go to, to feeling around and trying to pull calves and, and sure enough, we pull just like you said, a hundred and something pound bull calf out of her. And I'm just in college, just starting to get like we were talking about where they're throwing all this knowledge out of me, but I don't have a lot of practical experience. I, I know just enough to be dangerous, I guess. And I say to him, well, you know, we're both already nasty and covered with slime. Might as well reach in there and check and make sure that there's not another one. And as you know, twins and cattle is not a real common thing, but, but why not? So he reaches in there and sure enough, he feels another leg and we pull a heifer out of her and and I don't know what occurred to me but I said well hey we're still slimy might as well reach in there there were three dead calves in that cow all oh, the pasture breeding goodness. I mean if you do ET you know uh, yeah. repro work it's possible to get multiples like that but but on a pasture bred triplets that's yeah. I've never seen another one or really even heard of another one wow so anyway there's my little out of the blue story for that no doubt that cow would have died if we hadn't gotten them all out over. That just is that little voice inside of you, mm -hmm. you know, that you have to pay attention to. Hey, go and check for another one. My, Why? You, there, there's no, you know, what's the chance of that? Earlier, we had kind of gotten a little bit into flirting with leaky gut syndrome and the blood brain barrier. Do you want to revisit that a little bit? Because I think that's a, that's a subject you have a lot of good information on. And I would be interested to learn a bit more about it. Every section of our body has a one cell thick lining that is all that's needed to keep what's on one side out of crossing over to the other side with the exception of specific molecules. We have the gut lining, the endothelium, that allows water through it, allows minerals that are chelated to come through, allows short chain fatty acids just pass through, allows glucose to come through to be picked up by insulin. So, and proteins, amino acids, they can uh, fly through there. So it's a barrier that keeps the bacteria that are in your gut, in your gut, like E. coli, or all the other bacteria that are supposed to be living in what we call the soil of our bodies. And it's really, it's one of those things that you want to think about for just a second. When you look at a tree or a plant back here, you can see over my shoulder, this tree, 
and it has roots that go into the ground. And in that ground, it, that soil are countless numbers of microbes that are doing exactly what's inside our gut. So animals, because we're, we move, we don't have soil. Can you imagine? Uh, excuse me, Dan, I have to take a break. I have to stick my finger in the soil to get some nutrients, you know? So we carry our soil with us. And we even use the word soil for our manure, except usually it's when the manure comes out unexpectedly and you soil something. But it is our soil filled with microbes. And it's those microbes that feed us. That's the part that is so hard to understand. That taco and that you know Slurpee that you got is not feeding you. You're feeding your gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that gut bacteria will break it down into things that can come in and things that don't wanna be in there, they send out the other, other end. The things that don't belong there are plant lectins, which are those proteins that can cause inflammation. So they're supposed to go out with the manure. And that keeps our body pristine. Unfortunately, with the abundant uh, variety of foods that we have now available that we didn't have a thousand years ago, uh, or even a couple hundred years ago, we now have these foods that are carrying in things that maybe don't belong there. And our one-lining gut gets overwhelmed. There's something called uh, zonulin. There are these tight junctions. A tight junction is one cell sits next to another cell and it glues itself together and it is impermeable. But uh, with some of these chemicals that we bring in, we start to create gaps. And that gap is what we call leaky gut. In addition, there are some cells that can bind to other cells and they don't need that gap. They can actually penetrate the lining of the cell and go through one wall and out the other side. Uh, one of the great examples is lipopolysaccharides. Uh, lipopolysaccharides, big word, LPS for short, are the breakdown of the gut bacteria. These gut bacterias die, and what's left over are these segments of bacterias. They're like fragments. And when you eat a polyunsaturated oil, which is any oil that comes from a seed, such as canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oils, you know, all these oils, flaxseed oil, all of these oils are polyunsaturated fats. They will bind to the poly, uh, lipopolysaccharides and that unit can pass through. And they found in humans that these combinations of lipopolysaccharides and polyunsaturated fatty acids, that combination they found in the joints of humans. And if you have achy joints, uh, throughout the day, or especially in the morning, you get rid of the polyunsaturated fatty acids in your life and only eat oils from fruits like coconut, avocado, and of course, olives. All that achiness goes away, which is kind of fascinating. If you stop eating um, fruits and vegetables that have uh, lectins in them, like the seeds and the skin of tomatoes, which is a fruit, if you stay away from legumes that haven't been pressure cooked, then those lectins don't no longer penetrate the bowel and create leaky gut. So <laughs> this is so cool. So the foods that you put into your horse, I assume are going to be the same as any other mammal out there. You have one cell layer thick with these tight junctions and these tight junctions break down or the foods penetrate the, the cells and they get on the inside of your body where your body mounts an immune response. And if you read anybody's treat us on the immune system in humans, 
and I think they're also saying this in other animals now, that the majority of your immune system lies in your gut. Uh, some people say 80% of your immune system is sitting right on the other side of this endothelial line to attack all these attackers to calm things down. And that's what makes a horse feel uneasy. They're constantly having inflammation at their gut lining as you feed these other inflammatory foods. And you'll see that as I'm unwilling to be brushed. I'm unwilling to have the girth tightened up. They call them being girthy. They're, you know, you're out there with a nice slow trot warming up and the horse starts to buck and kick you off. These are, these are things that are happening in the gut lining that are inflammatory and making the horse feel bad. Worse, some of these foods will cause the death of some of these bacteria. So you have that dysbiosis we started talking about, and that will set up products that will actually burn the lining of your gut, which leads to ulcers. They can be gastric ulcers, meaning in the stomach. They can be colonic ulcers, ulcers in the colon, in the cecum, or in the small intestine. So those ulcers are irritating and painful, and then we end up giving a medication that alters the pH so you don't have this burning sensation anymore, but that also alters the gut microbes and you're not fixing the problem, you're basically covering it up. Yes, they do work. They're wonderful drugs for a horse that's in pain. You want to use them, but you have to get rid of the underlying problem. And that's just the gut lining. And you asked about the blood brain barrier. Well, that's one cell thick uh, lining as well. And they're now realizing that if you have gut inflammation and a leaky gut, you're also probably having a leaky blood brain barrier. Now, these uh, one cell linings are everywhere. They're on your lungs. This is why now COPD or heaves is now being called equine asthma because they're realizing that equine asthma is very similar to uh, human asthma. And in the human studies, they're now realizing that human asthma is related to metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome is related to having more sugar than your body needs. You have more insulin production. You have all the sequelae from that, including leaky gut syndrome and this dysbiosis. If you want to get rid of dysbiosis, gastric ulcers, colonic ulcers, bootiness of your horse, unwilling partner, inability to ride the horse out and bucking, you want to take all these inflammatory foods away and calm down that lining of the gut lining. And what's really noticeable is most horses that are removed from these inflammatory foods also seem to become a willing partner. They're more work focused, they're more compliant. And that is in the blood brain barrier. They're calming down. They don't feel uncomfortable. They don't feel bad. They, they're better learning. Uh, this bulletproof coffee that I've mentioned to me, I have coffee with fats in it. And these fats actually can penetrate my brain better than sugar. And, and it's used as an alternative fuel. Plus it calms the blood brain barrier down because I don't eat for 12 hours a day, at least maybe it's up to 18 hours, depending on my day. I limit the time. I restrict the time that I eat. And this is well-documented in humans. And now we're starting to see that in horses, maybe they do need eight, 10, 12 hours away from food. Everyone says, oh my God, we can't do that. You know, a horse needs to be eating continuously. And I'm like, prove it. You know, where's the science? Everybody wants, every, everyone wants to believe the scientists, you know, but every scientific study out there on nutrition is biased and it's unreliable. And that's been documented over and over again by really, really smart people. So 
here I am talking about what scientists are discovering is a blood-brain barrier, the gut barrier, your lung barrier. We're all into lung barrier now with this uh, COVID infection and how it's affecting the, the lung barrier and surfactant production. And we have difficulty breathing. And then they put us on a ventilator because we can't absorb the oxygen. Without oxygen, you die. So we have these linings everywhere. And they're now discovering that um, there's something called the vagus nerve. And I was taught in vet school that the vagus nerve goes from the gut to the brain and is sending signals up. And um, actually I was taught that the brain was sending signals down to, well, it's a two-way communication they now know. And in fact, it's mostly from the gut to the brain. And they're actually seeing some of these lectins actually climb on these nerves and follow the nerves up into the brain and cross the blood-brain barrier causing brain inflammation. And now we now know that cognitive decline, cognitive dysfunction is basically secondary to metabolic syndrome. Be specific, it's type three diabetes by most people now. So there's, there's a whole bowl full for you, Daniel. I just dumped a pile. No, no, that's-, that's <laughs> It's weird. all connected. So would you like to, uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm keeping you brief here and I'll just say, Dr. Tucker also has a podcast called The Horse's Advocate. He gets, as you can tell, down to the cellular level about a lot of stuff. If you are kind of geeky like I am, I, 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 I love your podcast. I listen to every single one of them. So if you're more interested in nutrition, he's got tons and tons and tons of information. But would you give us the, the summation of a dietary um, recommendation that you would have a, of a better way to feed your horse? rather than the way most people go about it. It's a great opportunity for me to try something new. <laughs> I have two questions. Question number one, how's what you're doing working for you? And if it's 100% working for you, everything's going great and you have no problems for your horse, then don't change. But if it's not working for you, if you're having a horse that is obese, is having metabolic syndromes, is breaking down because it's lame, it's been diagnosed with Cushing's, uh, it's non-sweating, it's narcoleptic, which means it falls asleep while standing. It, if you've got any issues with your horses that's not perfect, then what you're doing isn't working. My second question is, how, how on earth did these horses survive for 55 million years without our help? And all of a sudden we come along in the past 4,000 years, and especially, especially since 1973, when I started with horses, yes, for you guys who are math uh, challenged, that's coming up on my 50th year. We treated horses completely different back then. And my boss had the money to buy anything she wanted for my horses. I mean, we raised hundreds of horses on their thoroughbreds that went to the racetrack. You know, how do they live without all these supplements, with all this, this stuff? And if you go back to 1973, we were getting hay delivered by tractor trailer though. But what about 1963, when we barely had any interstate systems? 1953, when Mack trucks were barely in, in, in John Deere tractors, and who the heck had a, a bailing machine? You know, you go back to the 40s, which wasn't that long ago, how did horses get their nutrition? And all of a sudden, since the 70s and certainly the 80s and 90s and 2000, I mean, I can pick up a, a magazine. This one just came in the mail, all right? The horse, all right? And what's on the back? We have laminitis, number two cause of death. And this is, I, I, I haven't, 
Okay, Wellness Ready measures insulin, delivers results instantly. Okay, insulin is coming up to the forefront. Here's Equithrive, and, and, and I go through here, and there's so many feeds and so many you know, companies that are saying, uh, uh, and Care Credit, of course, and these are big sponsors, uh, Pro Elite, right? Unparalleled Nutrition, and you're sitting here wondering what to do. And the reason I got this, it just came in the mailbox just yesterday. And on the cover is this one, when less is more. And I'm like, holy moly, maybe my message is getting out. I don't know. They certainly didn't call me up for my thoughts. But the bottom line is, to answer your question, less is more. Just think, a horse is probably the only true herbivore that you know, unless you have cattle or, or goats or sheep. Okay, but it's truly an herbivore. And we're trying to, a vegetarian, if you will, we're trying to feed them like carnivores. We're giving them feeding times, we're fe feeding meal, meal, meals times. Um, and then, <laughs> oh, I love it when the brain farts like that. And, and we're trying to fine tune everything. Now, you could ask me, do I take supplements? And my wife and I have decided to look at a couple of different things because we still aren't feeling 100% and we listen and we're trying things. And are there supplements available? I just listened to a great podcast that the Florida Veteran Mer Medical Association had. Um, and it was uh, Dr. Jane Manfred from Michigan State University, Manfredi, Jane Manfredi, who um, talked about equine metabolic syndrome and PPID in horses, which everyone knows is Cushing's disease. And it went on and on and on. But I found that at the very end, she said, you need to be giving your horses Veritrol. And that's what's in wine. So I guess we're going to crack some wine bottles, great red wine, pour it down our throats. I mean, the horse's throat. Oops, Freudian. Anyway, and she was saying that um, I noticed was Veritrol. That in the last podcast, you made a, a Freudian slip there. Uh, you know, that's when you say one thing, but you mean your mother, right? <laughs> I've been waiting on using that joke at some point for like five years. So I had to slip it in there. <laughs> that was good. But she started to use the words that functional medicine doctors are saying. She says obesity and insulin resistance equals inflammaging. And inflammaging is the catchphrase now where our aging is is accelerated by the more systemic inflammation that we have. And she was really good to explain how the uh, fat cells, when they increase their fat size, I've been saying they release cytokines and she was very specific. She says, tissue necrosis factor alpha and uh, different interleukins, ILP6, uh, ILP1. And these are inflammatory and they go out and create systemic inflammation. So the more sugar you feed, the more fat is that sugar is turned into body fat, the more body fat fills in that fat cell and that releases more uh, cytokines. And some of us remember cytokine storms from this COVID deal. Well, if you're fat, that is going to have a higher level of these cytokines. And then when you do get, uh, whether it's coronavirus or in the horse, another virus or any other kind of virus or any disease or any stress because you're shipping it or you're putting it through um, paces that it's not used to or, or you bring in another horse and it wrecks the, the um, uh, hierarchy system, uh, these horses are already inflamed and now they're thrown over the edge. So my advice is less is more. Go back to what horses were eating uh, 
normally in the in the 1950s. I mean, let's just pick a nice round number, the 1950s. Unfortunately, uh, most of us can't afford a lot of pasture. I mean, we can barely afford an acre and we have three horses. <laughs> Something's wrong there. But you need to come to grips with the fact that you need more pasture and fewer horses. That would help. You need to uh, use hay the way it's intended, which was to get them through winter when it's really cold and they need something to eat. But you have to also look at the dormant pasture of your uh, winter fields as actually being filled with nutrition that's mostly cellulose that the gut bacteria will convert into short chain fatty acids. And fatty acids is great. Butyrate is a wonderful, wonderful fatty acid that does so much to make the horse healthier. But um, everyone thinks that they need sugar. That's one of the things I think people do not understand. A, a horse, and, I, and feel free to interrupt me, but a, a horse's digestive system consists of a single stomach, they're a monogastric, and then we have the small intestine, the cecum, and the large colon. And the cecum is unique in a horse in that that's where we have the breakdown of cellulose, and that's why they can digest grasses and things. Like we're also monogastrics, but we eat fiber more for filler and to, to go through us without effect whereas they actually can break down fiber. And the weird thing or the counterintuitive thing is that they turn fiber into fat, which is not what you would think intuitively they get from it, but that in fact is how they're fueling themselves off of hay and to some extent grasses is by extracting fat from it. So they really right. are running more on fat naturally than we have any concept that they are, in my opinion. Nailed it. Nailed it. So we've heard of structural carbohydrates and non-structural carbohydrates. Anybody? Mm -hmm. Non-structural NSAs. And what that basically means is during photosynthesis, the horse is going to make a molecule of glucose. And then it's going to make another molecule of glucose and it's going to store it right next to it. And then another one, another one. So they glue all these glucoses together and they make these long chains. That's called non-structural carbohydrate. And of course, you and I would call it starch. And that's how uh, plants store their sugar. They make sugar through photosynthesis and they store it. But at night, this is what's so cool. Every other molecule of glucose is turned upside down. So you have right side up, upside down, right side up, upside down, right side up, upside down, right side up, upside down. And that is what we call structural carbohydrate or cellulose. What's interesting is every animal on the planet can take an enzyme that we make and we can digest starch. It's called amylase. And we can break down all our starch into glucose. So while we're eating our potatoes or we're eating our starchy vegetables, that starch is um, goes into sugar formation. But when we eat the cellulose, that is broken down by the gut bacteria. No animal on the planet, including your horse, can break down cellulose, which is so cool. But in their cecum and in their colon, they have these bacteria that'll break it down. And a lot of people have understood the word prebiotic. They often get it confused with probiotics. There's prebiotics, probiotics, and now there's postbiotics. That's a whole different realm, uh, which I'm not ready to talk about, but they, they've now found another class. Uh, but the prebiotics, are unrelated probiotics. Probiotics, you're throwing bacteria and yeast in the mouth and hoping that they survive and they're supposed to repopulate the gut. So let's not talk about that. But prebiotics are certain uh, fibers that actually fuel the bacteria. So the bacteria are allowed to make what they're supposed to make. 
fermented food is really good for uh, us. Sauerkraut is a great example. Unripe fruit can put in some uh, starches, uh, fiber that's in there that uh, like unripe bananas can actually help feed the gut and create uh, these really beautiful butyrates and other short chain fatty acids. The cattle, all ruminants have that four chambered stomach. And what makes them different is they can take lignin and lignin is uh, cellulose on steroids. It's what creates the bark, it creates the trunk of the tree, it's woody, if you will, lignin is woody. And ruminants can eat woody things and survive on it. But horses don't have that ability. So horses are like tapers, and like rhinoceroses. Uh, and I picked those because they're all odd-toed unglets or hooved animals that have one or three toes. And they have these hindgut fermentation uh, containers that will ferment the fiber into these uh, acetate, uh, pyruvate, and butyrate. These are short-chain fatty acids. What they also do, what the bacteria also does is they make all your vitamins. Every vitamin that the horse needs is basically made by the bacteria. And if you have a vitamin deficiency, it could be that you're actually consuming them faster than you can make them. So if you're a racehorse and if you want to add some vitamins, you know, there's no, no harm, no foul giving these things. But for instance, biotin, everyone gives biotin to the horse's hoof to, to repair it. But what they don't realize is biotin is vitamin B7. It's a B vitamin. And the gut bacteria make it. But if your gut bacteria aren't making biotin, it could be that you're not feeding correctly and they're not getting enough uh, fiber to feed that gut bacteria to create the biotin. So all vitamins are made by the gut bacteria. They get their uh, preferred uh, fuel, which is fat. That drives the muscles. And I love it when horses, uh, trainers come to me and say, well, how do I feed my competitive horse? I'm like, no sugar. <laughs> There's enough sugar in the hay that you're feeding and in the forage that you feed. There's enough sugar to keep the brain functioning and all the other processes. Sugar is not evil. It's the excess amount of sugar. Sugar in excess of what the body needs for the day. That's where you have increased insulin. That's where you start to get insulin resistance. That's where you start to create body fat. So if your horse is increasing body fat, the only reason is because you're feeding glucose in excess of the body fat of their needs. And it's being converted into the glucose being converted into body fat. Maybe I need more coffee. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was going to say that that's one of the, you know, we see these trends in, in the horse world. And it seems to me that these days I only see two kinds of horses. I see horses that are neglected and are too skinny. And I see horses that are obese and I seldom see those body condition scores of four, five, and six in the ideal sort of range. There are a lot of really fat horses out there running around, and then people mysteriously have these issues, anhydrosis, and, and it seems like, well, I'll say in our area, the, the heaves in the last 10 years has skyrocketed, mm -hmm. um, but there seems yeah. to be an association with bahia grass, hay, and a certain fungus in there that that is, so I, I don't allow bahia grass, hay on the place because I'm terrified that, that I'm going to wind up with an epidemic of that stuff over here. But, but it, it is kind of weird how problems that weren't a problem at all, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, all of a sudden everybody knows five friends that have a horse like that. And yet we drop don't fetlocks is a great example. Mm -hmm. Drop fetlocks, you know, where the pastures just drop down. Mm -hmm. How about kissing spine? 
you could argue that we didn't have x-rays and we've had sore backs in the past, but the degree of kissing spine that's out there founder in horses. I mean, that used to be a fat pony syndrome. Now it's horses are getting it. Heaves, like you say, is increasing. Uh, from my perspective, when I went to vet school in 1980, uh, there was no, no mention of uh, fractured teeth, cheek teeth in horses. And the EOTRH, where the front teeth are all diseased and falling out, not a mention of it. So these are new diseases. And where's that coming from? As far as I'm concerned, it's the change in diet. And we have to get away from this change, you know, and we have to go back. Less is more. Yeah. But I have one more important thing to talk about. Okay. Because you asked me, how do you feed a horse? Well, feed it like it used to be. But that implies that your horses had free range and had an abundant supply of a variety of plants. But now we have these fenced in pastures that have only one or two grasses that are growing out there. Maybe yours has three or four with weeds being uh, in there. But usually it's one or two grasses and the hay you buy is one or two grasses, maybe Timothy or Timothy alfalfa or whatever your coastal or whatever you want. But they're not getting the variety. So then I say the word protein and everyone's eyes just glaze over. You know, they're like, protein, I've heard the word. You know, I don't even understand it. And if you wanted to push me in the corner and say, doc, just say one thing. I'll say most horses are chronically protein deficient. They're so protein deficient. And that means two things. One, they're not getting the quantity of protein to maintain themselves. And two, they're not getting the quality of protein. So they're not getting all the building blocks, all the proteins that'll make everything. And if people just realize that when you're looking at a horse, when you look at the hair coat, that's protein. You look at the hooves, that's protein. You look at their neurotransmitters. Uh, when you say Cushing, it's a neurodegenerative disease, that's protein. Immune system, protein. Connective tissue, like suspensories, protein. Everything's protein. And the horse isn't getting it for one huge, for two huge reasons. One, they're not being fed enough uh, of high quality protein. They're getting haze out there. They're even adding legumes, but only 50% of the protein, whatever hay you're feeding is being absorbed. So if you're feeding 12% uh, protein hay, it's actually almost 6%. That's just the way it is in horses. And if you look at the amino profile, it doesn't have all the 10 essential amino acids. It has you know, maybe six of them. And so you're missing some of them. It's like getting a dictionary, missing a letter. So no W's, you know, who, what, why, when, how, or tomorrow. Daniel, where will we meet tomorrow? Turns out to Daniel meet. And you can't even say what? Because <laughs> there's no W's. The other thing is they're consuming them. So all proteins that are made in your body have a lifespan. And when they reach the end of the lifespan, they are taken apart into their small bits, like letters to a word, and reassembled into other words or other proteins. So a neurotransmitter, boom, it's made and destroyed in less than a second. Muscles, boom, they're made and destroyed in about six years. So this is why we don't see lamenesses until about 10 to 14 years old into these horses, unless they're race horses. So that 12-year medium, all these horses are breaking down. Yeah, I got a 12-year-old, but he's getting a tendon, you know, suspensory or whatever. That's because the proteins aren't being... Uh, are being consumed and not being replaced. The number one consumer of protein is the excess sugar that you're feeding into your diet will sequester all that sugar by insulin into your body fat, which makes your brain say, hey, I need some sugar, man. I can't think without sugar. So it goes to the liver and says, let's convert proteins, amino acids into sugar. 
So there's less and less amino acids. You're not feeding them. They're consuming them. This is why you see the 80-year-olds at the mall walk around on walkers and you blow on them and they fall over because they've lost all their muscle. It's called sarcopenia. And these people are losing muscle. Your top line goes on your horse. He's 12, 14, 16 years old and the top line looks like crap. Well, I guess I need to exercise some more, but I can't because he's lame. Well, exercise is going to work. Ask any bodybuilder lifts iron. You know, they can lift iron all day, but if they're not consuming enough protein to meet those needs, he's never going to make muscle. So yeah, cut, so stop feeding inflammatory ingredients and add protein. So how do we, let's say we are incapable with our hay of, of reaching the protein threshold that our horse needs. We're not seeing that top line fill in and so forth. Is there a simple and easy to acquire source that you recommend of, of protein? And by the way, I just, as you keep talking, I keep having all these little phrases pop into my head. And this is, this is one of my favorite ones. And this was actually said by a feed salesman representative that came to talk about, to us during a nutrition class in college and is maybe one of the most honest things I've ever heard a feed salesman say. And he said that horses do not have a protein requirement. They have an amino acid requirement. And I thought that was just a profound statement because everybody buys feed by whether it's a 12% or a 14%. And that's really a whole lot less important than, than some other things. So anyway, do yeah, you have a, a- It's perfect. Is I'd like to uh, redefine that. There oh. are low quality proteins, there are uh, good quality proteins, and there are high quality proteins. And that is basically what the feed represent re was representative of saying. The high quality proteins have all 10 essential amino acids. What that means is the horse cannot make these amino acids. There are 20 amino acids. And 10 of them, the horse can make 10 of them. They have to consume. Now it's arguable. It could be nine. You know, some people say that, you know, it's, I don't care. The point is there's a group of amino acids that they have to consume from there. And three of them are called limiting amino acids. And you see this in triaminos. You see this in almost every feedback. They have uh, uh, lysine, threonine, and methionine. Those are your three limiting amino acids. And that means they're just not out in the environment and you have to add them. The thing that I've used since 1973 for my protein um, supplement in horses is a beautiful legume. It's a vegetable uh, and we know horses eat legumes all the time. Alfalfa and clover, we all, birds for trefoil, all these other legumes that are out there. And all of a sudden I say soybean meal and everyone puts, no, not soybeans. No, I will never eat soybeans. I'm like, you're not a horse. You know, I, you know, people put up barriers and they don't want to do that. And then I just go back to my first one of two questions. So how's, how's what you're feeding working for you? Well, the top line's gone. He's got suspensory ligaments. He's lame. You know, he's got Cushing's disease. Okay. So what you're doing is it working. Here's soybean meal that I've been using since 1973. It's available worldwide. It's like one of the leading number one manufactured uh, feeds in America, we export tons of it. We have a surplus of it. So why are you afraid to, to feed it? So luckily where we live, uh, we have an excellent source. It comes out of Sandusky, Ohio, comes down to our feed dealers, always clean. It's always perfect. We have no problems with it. But a lot of people get their soybean meal and they have uh, 
infestation of uh, insects. They have mold. Uh, they have other grains mixed into it. It's just deplorable what they've got. And it's, it's frustrating because here I am trying to get soybean meal out to horse owners as an excellent source of protein for all the horses. But then I get people saying, well, I can't use that because it's not GMO or it's got glyphosate on it. Well, your hay has glyphosate on it. Well, we can't control that, but I could control on soybean meal. Yeah, but your hay is also missing amino acids. So you're feeding glyphosate and no amino acids in your hay. Why not feed it, you know, a little bit of glyphosate in your, uh, I mean, glyphosate has yet to kill anybody. Yes, it was created as an antibiotic. I get that. Antibiotics are, are bad because they kill, you know, without, you know, a broad swath. And you can kill the bacteria in the gut. Well, all the sugar you're feeding is also killing the bacteria in your gut. The stress you're putting your horse through is killing the bacteria in your gut. You know, we can't be picky. If you're going to put a fence up and you want to keep your horse natural, it's just not going to happen because a fence is not natural. This is the type of stuff that people don't want to hear. Glyphosate is so also got a molecule that breaks down very readily. Um, and, and just like with any other molecule, you take a hydrogen off somewhere and it can totally change what that, you know, H2O is water and you drink it and you need it to survive. H2O2 has another oxygen on it. And if you drink it, you will die. And so one little element or molecule here and there, glyphosate breaks down very readily. If, if In fact, if you take muddy water, it breaks down when it hits the soil. If you take muddy water and you put it in a sprayer tank and then you add glyphosate to it and you go try to spray it on a field to kill grass, it won't kill grass anymore because the, the soil uh, breaks down the molecule and changes it around a lot. So I, I do think people yeah. get a little, little bit, yeah, so. They're worried about that. Um, there's a, a, a client of mine up in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, whose husband works for the state and his job is to look at farmers and what they apply to their soils and make sure that it's okay. I said, what a great opportunity to ask an expert. So I said, so glyphosate has a half-life of what, 120 days? He says, if that. I said, so there's really no worry about glyphosate being put on the soil. And, you know, he says, no, there is none. And this is an expert whose job it is to keep us safe. And he's not seeing a problem. Now, if you take glyphosate and pour it all over you and ingest it, you know, you're going to get these uh, things uh, that, that the lawsuit came out. And, and, and the guy said, I wish that lawsuit had never come out because it's really wrecking havoc. I think last time I looked, there were seven companies that made glyphosate, one of which was Monsanto that got sold to Merck. And everyone blames um, Roundup. That's just one. There's like six or seven other uh, glyphosates out there. And you're seeing glyphosate in uh, wine. So why are you finding glyphosate in organic wine? Well, apparently it doesn't break down on organic wine. So there's one that you might want to worry about. But, you know, it's also used to um, desiccate wet hay, so dry, so you have less mold on your hays. Another thing is genetic modification. And this has always stumped me because what is genetic modification? It modifies the genes to create different proteins in the plant so it's more resistant to disease. And, uh, and to applications of things like glyphosate so it doesn't kill. And uh, so what happens to all proteins when you eat them? You know, they're broken down into the amino acids. So yes, there are some lectins that are proteins that are built to resist. They become peptides and they can cause wreck havoc. But the guy who 
really helped promote the word Frankenfood when GMOs came out. He wrote a two-page Wall Street Journal article, two pages. I'll never forget seeing, and I've got a photograph someplace, two whole pages saying, I want to apologize. I was at the forefront of ripping uh, GM uh, genetically modified foods apart. And now I realize that not only has there never been any disease caused by it, but it actually helped uh, some of these poverty farmers come out of poverty because now they have products that they could sell. And now the suicide rate of farmers has dropped because they're not uh, genetically modified foods. So, you know, it's a catchphrase like everything else. You get, you get bound and hooked on it. Like, you know, all blondes are stupid. Sorry, don't believe that, you know? Or how about this? Oh, you've got a chestnut thoroughbred. Well, they're crazy, you know? We latch onto these things and it's just wrong. So, and, and then you have your horse falling apart because it doesn't have enough protein. Well, here's an opportunity to add cheap. $20 for a 50 pound bag will last you 50 days for 1100 pound horse. Can you find anything any cheaper? No. And it's everywhere. I had a gal say, I was so lucky. This has been the best thing that's happened to my horses. I added soybean meal and they're doing fantastic. And oh, by the way, I live in Kenya. Well, I had to travel 45 minutes to find my soybean meal. Good. Now you're being an advocate for your horse. That's so. becoming now just about every feed company has a product that is a top line balancer or something like that. And if you look at the ingredients on there, I'll bet the primary one is probably soybean meal and they're going to add a few little things here and there, but uh, and again, those are alfalfa meal, all those, meal. Yeah, all those uh, products are the kind of thing where you're feeding like a half a pound or a pound a day. It's, I mean, it's it's right in line with the same thing. Uh, it just has their their uh, logo on the bag, and it's a, a little bit more expensive. So, and soybean and, meal is an ingredient like flowers in Nabisco, and it's in Keebler. You know, you buy the cookies; it still has flour in it, and that's what uh, soybean meal is. And soybean um, meal provides all of the amino. Said, soybean meal does provide all of the amino acids, correct? So you're you're not having a, well, well, like we said, they don't have a protein requirement. They have an amino acid requirement. So you could feed them a high protein supplement that is lacking in certain amino acids and still have a problem with soybean meal. That's not a problem because all of the amino acids are present, correct? By definition, if it doesn't have all the amino acids uh, that are required, it's only a good quality protein. You have to be feeding high quality proteins. A soybean meal is one of them. S some people have looked into hemp, hemp protein. Uh, some people insist on feeding pea protein. Tom Brady, if you're a football fan, loves pea protein. Whey protein, which uh, obviously everyone, you know, bodybuilders love whey protein. They all have different absorbability factors. Some people are saying that cool stance coconut has a higher uh, spectrum of amino acids, and I guess it does. But when you look at for a cost per pound basis with a safety factor of decades, 30 plus years, 40 years, it's soybean meal, hands down. It's cheap, it's, it's, it's efficient, it's ubiquitous. And horses, I'd say 98% of them will eat it out of your hand and keep eating it. The one or 2%, fine, put a teaspoon in, add a little bit at a time and get them onto it and they'll like it. But um, I'd say 98% uh, acceptance. So yeah, it's, and everybody's gone on it. You know, the things that happen is within two weeks, you have a new hair coat. 
uh, people are just blown away by that. In two to four months, if you don't tell your farrier, uh, they'll start to see the new hoof formed and you'll actually physically see it from the coronary band down. The walls become stronger. It, you can see the new hoof formation and the farrier, if you don't tell them, they become an independent set of eyes and they'll probably say, man, I don't know what you're doing, but keep it up. I've never seen these hooves look better. The top line starts to look better at about six months and by a year, uh, between a year and two years, the top line is completely restored. Between a year and two years, the hooves are completely restored. Sometimes it takes up to two years, depends on how old the horse is. And that's because the older the horse is, the more difficult it is to get them off the insulin destruction, uh, to lose the body fat, to get rid of the inflammation and have this conversion of the amino acids back over into useful structural properties. I've had some people with the help of the veterinarian look at the ACTH levels, and those that are on the protein over time, their ACTH levels come back to normal. They've been able to take them off medications, uh, and their horses, quote unquote, cured of um, Cushing's, which is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, but no veterinarian makes money off of diet, you know, selling you some soybean meal. Oh. Sorry, that was a dig on my profession. But if our profession is truly out here for the benefit of the horse and helping the horse, it is our job to teach our horse owners how to care for their horse and make their horses as healthy as possible. So I don't care what you feed them. They're going to run into something and they need sutures put in. But why are we going out for colics? We can get rid of colics. We can get rid of hoof problems. You know, we can get rid of so many things, kissing spine, dental issues. They still chew. They still need their teeth floated if you want pain-free bit response. But um, Well, it's about sorry. time for us to come to our sponsor for this episode, Dr. Tucker. And this is a returning sponsor. And, and I asked them specifically because of, of you being on here. I thought this was a fitting sponsor for this podcast. So today we are sponsored by the American Society Simplifying and Exemplifying Sarcasm. Did you know that 80% of Americans rate as subfluent in sarcasm? And as an aside, 78.34% of statistics are totally made up. Anyway, the American Society <laughs> Simplifying and Exemplifying Sarcasm, also known as asses, they know that you are smart enough to tell the obvious from the obviously wrong. Heck, we even promise to definitely help you to recognize hyperbole and stop using the word literally when you really mean figuratively. Recognize when others are being humorous in your presence. At ASSES, we've even seen a strong correlation between people learning to read when others are being disingenuous and voting better. Join our movement today and become an ass yourself. <laughs> I got a contact don't see if they can sponsor me <laughs> making up the fake sponsors no, literally, is my favorite part. literally literally <laughs> okay good um, god daniel i am you're, you're again you're just causing this is like when i listen to jordan peterson i have a hard time listening to him because he stimulates so many other thoughts i have to you know rewind 30 seconds constantly when i'm listening to his podcast and stuff and you have a similar effect on me and i mean that in a complimentary way so one of the questions i had about dentals bringing us back to the beginning of the podcast or i should say two questions one do you recommend dentals annually every six months depends on the horse how would we know the difference what would be the 
the discerning factor and, and maybe tied to that. One of the things I hear most about when you need to have your horse's teeth done is when you start seeing fibers in the manure that are longer than a half an inch long. So does that really have any basis in fact, or what are your thoughts on that stuff? I'm tempted to say, gosh, I've answered that question a million times. Can we move on? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the beginning, I'm honored that I have an opportunity to uh, answer this question again, because uh, they are the most commonly asked questions, like how often do you flow a horse's teeth? And my answers are going to sound a little uh, canned because I do answer this so often. But if you look at a horse chewing, he will chew, he or she will chew approximately 25,000 chews per day. Now, Dr. Catherine Haupt, a professor emeritus at Cornell in behavior, uh, a friend of mine who's given me permission to, to use her study, actually counted how many times a horse chews in a day, which is between 10,000 and 40,000 chews per day. Uh, so if you take the middle number, 25,000, uh, I'm good with math. Uh, actually, I've memorized this. Uh, 25,000 times uh, 30 days is 750,000 chews. And with each chewing motion, the tongue is going out and in, out and in, out and in. And the tongue will strop the tooth. Stropping is what granddad used to do when he took his razor and shaved himself. And then he would take, you know, it would go back and forth on the leather strap that's called stropping. And that's what the tongue does. And that's what creates the sharpness and wears down the teeth. 25,000 chews, 750,000 in a month. Now, you and I chew approximately 2,000 times a day, according to my dentist, who told me this when I asked her, and I multiplied that by 30, that's 730,000 chews in a year, and they're doing that in a month. In six months, it's 4.5 million chews. In a year, it's 9 million chews. So somewhere between six and 12 months, I tell everybody, it moves from prevention to fixing. So your horse is going to need floating somewhere between those two things. And there's two ways you can do this. You can do it as a preventive where you go and you file the edges down and make sure the horse is doing okay at six months, or you can wait until there's a problem, but do you want to wait until the engine starts to make noise before you change the oil? That's the idea. And if you're investing time and money or both into training, you want your, your horse to be as responsive as possible to the aids that you're putting to the mouth. Now, if you're one of these exceptional riders that do doesn't use a bit and can do everything through seat or vocal commands, great. But that's not taking into account what the horse is doing every day as far as chewing. So you have bit and you have chewing. Now, you can't tell when the horse is having problems because he sits there and eats year after year after year. He keeps eating and eating and eating. But if that's the case, why is it that I take some of these horses that have never been done before and the horse has no problems, the owner's saying it's fine, and I take off all those sharp edges, the horse goes, oh, and then starts to chew more purposefully with more lateral movement and chewing and his whole rate of chewing slows down and they seem to be at peace. These are things that you can see with your own eyes. So we're obviously taking something away. And even worse, now that we've taken it away, they now know that it's back. So they're like, at six months, where is that guy? Can you call him? Because now they're starting to show, you know, they, they've taken the pebbles out of the shoe. Now a grain of sand gets in there and they don't know what to do with themselves. So yes, a horse can live forever without having its teeth floated. I got it. And all of us who understand that horses were uh, created 
to adapt to whatever's going on, that's fine. They go 20, 25, 30 years, and they drop dead from something else. I get it. But if you're investing time and money into working with your horse, then somewhere between six and 12 months, it'll move from prevention to fixing. But I'm not done yet. We've got more. If you and I are standing here together and I pick a rock up and I put this rock on this pedestal, I say, Daniel, oh my gosh, this rock is amazing. It moves me. It just brings me joy. I'm just so, this is just the most amazing rock sculpture I've ever seen in my life. And you're looking at me, Doc, you know, that's just a rock, right? Well, floating teeth is an art form. You can say the same thing about music. You like music? Yeah, I like music. Great. Let's put some rap on. I can't stand rap. Well, let's put classical. I can't stand classical. So it's a type of art that you like. And floating teeth is an art form. It's not like an oil change that like you get your, your oil change, you know, New York, Florida, California, Louisiana, it doesn't matter. It's the same because it's a mechanical thing. But with a horse, the dentist that goes in there might think that doing just the front upper teeth is floating. Some of them will do everything but the very back, uppers and lowers. And they'll think that's floating. I got my teeth done, right? Air quotes again, done. So in my practice, every point needs to be addressed. And even I, after all these years, don't know if that's the correct way because 20 years ago, I've changed. And I keep finding better ways to do it. And the horses seem to respond a little bit more. So we're constantly looking for the best float out there. And that comes from the floater that you get, the dentist or the veterinarian that you hire. Uh, they're going to bring their art form to the table. And regardless of whether they can handle a horse with or without drugs, that's irrelevant. Because what got me out to Washington was a horse that was uh, medicated. The mouth was, the speculum was wide open and she used uh, power equipment and she thought she flowed the whole horse. But when the horse came to Florida, they knew there's still a problem. I literally worked on this horse five minutes and took down three sharp edges that this other person had missed. And the horse went out three days later, became grand champion of the show. And they campaigned to have me come all the way out to Washington, take care of their horses. And that's how that started. That was just five minutes, three little spots, all the difference in the world in this particular horse. That brings me to my final point. You have wimps and you have tough guys. That's called threshold of pain. And these guys down here that have zero threshold of pain, they can have a pimple in there, forget about it. And then you have the higher level ones, the stoic ones. You'll never know there's a problem. And I'll never forget doing this one stallion, an Andalusian stallion. Horses being ridden in dressage, no problems, doc, you're here. I kind of like what you do. Why don't you just take a look at my horse's mouth? I went in there and oh my gosh, it was so sharp as beyond belief. So I took down the edges. I got a phone call the next day. It started with, oh my God. And I thought I was in trouble. I thought, you know, the horse is dead or something. And she said, I never realized just how much his horse is hurting until you took all those sharp edges away. He's never given me a better ride in his life. He's enjoying the process. And that was one day later. So that's threshold of pain. So it depends on the threshold of pain, depends on the art form and whether you want to keep it preventive or fix. I'm answer. glad you mentioned threshold of pain. That, that's one of my pet peeves. I'm a big fan. I don't mean to insult uh, your profession or the academic side, but I am a big believer in that not all studies are good studies. 
sometimes if a lot of people don't actually read any of those things, but if you look at the modalities of the things that they tested, sometimes it's pretty easy to see that there's a hole in this theory you could drive an 18-wheeler through. And one of those things that keeps getting shared with me is about how stoic horses are and how they don't show pain. And that's definitely true with some horses, but it's definitely not true with other horses. I mean, it's like some people are pretty tough and some people aren't. Horses are not necessarily stoic. Some of them are absolute weenies. Uh, I know you talk sometimes, I'll let you tell the story, but about uh, how you can tell the difference when you get inside a horse's mouth between a tough one and a, and a not so tough one. I think the uh, 3% that I drug, of those 3%, some of them are, I'm extracting a tooth or doing something crazy like that. But there are some that are just so intolerant of pain that you just give a whisper of painkillers and they're like, okay, go ahead, float, I'm fine. Uh, I've had horses that you can do 98% of the mouth and you get to the first two bottom cheek teeth and they'll, they'll kill you without medication. Uh, you give them medication, and not only are they fine, but they look you square in the eye and they say, you listen to me. You know what I'm going through. Thank you. And then I can get away from the medications and I'll say, okay, I'm going for the first lower cheek tooth. They're like, you know, I tried to kill you last time. I said, I know, but you know that I know. And the horse says, yeah, I do know that. So let's try this together. And then they'll brace, they'll guard. They're like, oh, then I you did great. I'm like, yeah, I guess I did. Thanks. Mm, that feels better. And all I took was this small edge off. But I've had dressage horses at four months. They'll call me up and say, uh, actually five months. They'll say, my horse is unrideable. I'll get out here. And those horses are done three times a year. So every four months I'm out there because at five months they're untrainable. You know, mm -hmm. that's just the way the horse is. And they don't have much. Well, I, I was alluding to your story about you, you'll go inside the horse and the cheek will look like hamburger and you turn <laughs> to look at the client and say, this one's not giving you any trouble, is he? And they say, no, he's not. And then you go into another one and there's like a little pimple on the cheek back there. And, and that horse is the one that's responding to the pain and giving them all kind of hell. So the hamburger uh, meat, they're just numb. They're just numb. You made me um, think of another thing. And then I was so entertained by you repeating what I was saying. I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> you were talking about the dressage uh, that needed to be done three times a year and so forth. Yes, I was. I was. I also wanted to touch on the half inch in the manure. Does that have any bearing of reality whatsoever? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's all bacterial uh, dysbiosis. Bacteria. Uh, the only purpose of the cheek teeth, in my opinion, is to create a swallowable bolus. Now, I know that you and I have seen a lot of men eat in our lives. We might be included in this observation, but some of us chew our food and some of us just throw it down the gullet. <laughs> one, one, done, next meal. <laughs> and that will put less chewed food in the position of being digested by the gut bacteria and the enzymes. And what I find is, that when you have this long stem in there, it's not usually the food, it's a dysbiosis. And if you change the diet, so the bacteria change, that will go away. You'll also notice uh, free fecal water uh, or what I call the squirts will go away when you get rid of inflammation and stink. My wife and I just adopted a horse 
that one look at and she and I looked at each other and said, oh, we got to take this horse. We got to give this horse a home. And we, um, it's been here about four weeks and at about three to four weeks, the stench of that manure was so bad as we changed what the horse was eating over to something that's less inflammatory and we're starting to add a soybean meal. And my wife was like getting concerned. I said, no, it takes six weeks for the gut to heal, uh, full six weeks. So just be patient. And as we approach six weeks, that manure will look better. I mean, it looked fine. It was formed and everything, but the stench, oh my goodness. And sure enough, it was like three or four days and the smell's gone away and the horse is getting happier and happier. So yeah, it's all gut bacteria. If it's not digested, it's going to come out intact. That's my opinion. I may be wrong, but I don't think, oh, because I've had surgeons, I'll blame the teeth for impactions. They'll see this impacted grass in the pelvic flexure of the horse or someplace where it's bound up. And they'll say, oh, well, the teeth weren't done. And I'm like, no, I've been doing them. These teeth are fine. Um, it's what you're feeding the horse. And so who's going to put the money up for this research? You know, you talk about research being bogus, and I've got to agree. Most of the research out there is bogus, well, especially yeah, when it comes to nutrition. Very good. Some of it's not so good. That, that's all. You, you still have to use your brain. And sorry. I like to quote John Ioannidis. Uh, he's a physician, researcher, mathematician who does statistics out in Stanford, who looks at research. Uh, he got claim to fame as he looked at research on COVID and what we were doing for COVID and looked at the statistics of the results of what we're doing for COVID. But he's also done so much research on research. And he will point blank say 100% of nutritional studies are biased. And that's because the gut biome in me is different than the gut biome in you. Your gut biome is going to say, I can have a Snickers bar every once in a while and be fine. My gut biome, I have a Snickers bar and everything's off. So because of the individuality of every horse out there, I can blanket statements say take away all inflammatory uh, foods and add some high quality protein in and your horse will magically become 100%. But I do have horses that maybe they don't. Maybe they never do lose that crushed mat. Maybe they need something more. Maybe this horse needs its hay soaked at least an hour to take the starch out. By soaking your hay, you're reducing the sugar, reducing insulin. And these horses actually do lose their fat pads and crushing that. That's that much more work for most people to do. So with every horse and every human being an individual, you can't blanket statement nutritional facts. It just can't. So- a lot of research has this individual bias. And I did a whole um, podcast called the parachute study that went over that, that proved that you can jump out of an airplane uh, without a parachute and you won't have any bodily injury. So why have a parachute in these fighter jets will save millions of dollars. And that was published in the British Medical Journal as sarcasm. But it was a point to say, look, you guys, you know, retractions were such at a high level. Wall Street Journal said, the Lancet has had as high as number of retractions in all time. They're retracting things all the time. Say, oh, sorry, we're wrong about this. This is so commonplace, these retractions. You and I have to make a pact. When we earn the billion dollar super lotto, right? We're going to take a portion of it left over after paying all our bills. <laughs> and we're going to invest in research that's unbiased in horses because the drug companies aren't going to do it. The feed companies aren't going to do it. So who's going to step forward and say, this is how a horse should be fed. 
Interestingly, I'm looking around me because I can't see it because I have a problem remembering this book. I bought a book that was um, hit its second publishing in 1991 called uh, Horse Nutrition and Feeding. And it was the Bible in 1991. I decided to buy it and read it because I have all these equine nutritionists who say, he's just a veterinarian. He doesn't know nutrition. And I'm like, well, you know, you don't have to be licensed to be a nutritionist for humans or for uh, horses, just saying. So you can call yourself whatever you want. But instead of being vindictive or angry at these people, I just say, okay, well, I'll read what you read. And it's fascinating because in 1991, it lists vitamins and they don't have all the vitamins. And some of the vitamins, choline, for instance, was considered a vitamin. I think it's fascinating. And then choline, it says, was a vitamin then. He said he heard from one veterinarian and substantiated by several other veterinarians that if you give choline to horses with heaves, the heaves go away. And I'm like, I've been a vet since 1980 and I've never, ever heard that. Where's that? Why don't we do a study of adding choline to, to horses with heaves? Let's see what happens. Oh no, let's use albuterol and, or clenbuterol or whatever it's called, venipulmin. And I was on the FDA trial that did the venipulmin studies. And I got to tell you, I mean, I was shocked. I was shocked at the results that they got. And I was like, when they approved, the FDA approved the use of venipulmin, I said, are you nuts? I mean, why? But, you know, maybe I signed something that says I can't really talk about it, so I don't want to say it. But it proved to me that a lot of research just is, it's there to get whatever they've got out there to make money. And that was back in the 90s. And, um, and you know, so many horses that put on venipulmin, it doesn't work. So... Anyway, one of my favorite sayings, you kind of talked about the, the nutritionist and that's in the, the fallacy arguments that's called the call to authority where you, you, well, you don't have a degree in this or, or whatever. One of my favorite sayings there is, is that uh, half of all doctors graduated in the lower 50% of their class. So, you know, just, just because you do something for a living does not necessarily mean you're, you're at the, uh, the cream of the crop in that statement. And that applies to plumbers horse trainers, chiropractors, you know, whatever. There, there's always a lower third that should probably be out of business. And there's a, a middle group that are kind of good enough. And then there's a top group that are cracker jack and can fix anything, you know? So, well, a couple other topics. I know we're, we're running a pretty good little time here, but I definitely wanted to touch on. One of them was one I had suggested to you for your podcast, and that is diatomaceous earth and using that as a dewormer in horses and go. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell, tell you a story of a time when I was practicing uh, all, all things veterinary. And I went to this farm and I was doing routine uh, spring work for them. And I said, your horses, I didn't say this, but they looked like crap. And they looked so parasite ridden they were disgusting. And I said to him, so what are you doing for parasite control? And she says, oh, well, I feed him diatomaceous earth. And I'm like, okay, so what's the point of that? She says, well, apparently will physically abrade the lining of the, the parasite and cause their death and destruction or rip them out. I said, all right. I said, why don't we do a fecal exam? Just a fecal exam. And she says, no, don't want to. They're, my horses are fine. Now, my eyes are saying, your horses look like crap. And 
of course he had like 20 ponies on like four acres. Uh, it's just so dense. So um, I said, I'll tell you what, you pick whatever fecal ball you want. I'll take it in and for no cost at all, I'll run the fecal on it. And uh, she reluctantly agreed and I took it. I ran it uh, at Cornell Diagnostic Lab. Uh, so, you know, I didn't have any say on it. And it came back uh, with 2,000 eggs per gram of feces. Now, if you're like most red-blooded Americans, you don't know what a gram is. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're not here to discuss metric versus imperial, but uh, 454 grams. Just, you know, hold your four fingers up and throw your thumb out and just four, five, four, 454 grams per pound. So um, I'm going to take the liberty of rounding that up to 500 grams per pound because that's just easier for math. So you have 2,000 eggs per gram. How many eggs per pound? And it comes out to be a million eggs per pound of poop. And how many pounds of poop does your horse produce? And a one pound of that shovelful, and you know that shovelful's got like five or six or seven pounds in it. You've got, you know, four to six, seven million eggs from the parasites. And I called her up and I said, your horse has a horrific load of 2,000 eggs per gram of feces. And she says, I really don't want to hear about it. Diatomaceous earth works and that's the end of that. Never saw her again. So I actually offended her. But since that time, I've been telling people that the best prevention is what your mama used on you. And everyone looks at you and says, well, what do you mean? My mom never dewormed me. I said, no, she made you wash your hands so you didn't have dirt coming into your mouth. And uh, she cooked your food and, and you ate it in a room that was far away from the septic tank. And so you never had that recycling of parasites inside of you. And that's why most uh, people in countries that do practice sanitation don't have parasites. But I can take you to Walgreens right now and I can find you anthelmetics on the shelf, uh, pinworm medication, which is strongid, uh, the liquid strongid that's there for you to take right now. Everyone's talking about ivermectin for use for COVID, but ivermectin has been approved for use in humans. We now know for decades. It's a huge antiparasitic and, and used for dengue fever in South America, which is a viral infection. So, I mean, ivermectin has been around forever. So here we've got this camp that says you need to, to, to fecal test and you need to use strategic deworming all the time and get the egg count down. And then we have a veterinarian out of Kentucky who says, no, you really want to have some uh, parasites in there because that helps the immune system. A great example of that is ascrites, which are those long white worms that uh, youngsters have. And some youngsters that have an over-infection of ascrites die from impactions because it looks like there's a wad of spaghetti in their guts and nothing can get through. So ascrites uh, are not an issue after about one to two years of age because the immune system takes care of it and you won't get it until the horse is debilitated and old and all of a sudden you see ascrites again. So your immune system is number one for caring for uh, parasites. And this vet out of Kentucky is saying, look, you know, all these anti-anthelmetics, these dewormers, we're getting resistance to. Uh, so we got to stop using them and it's okay. So it goes right back to Get yourself a pasture vacuum, get yourself a fork and go out there and pick up the manure. And if you have 10 horses on one acre, it's never going to work. It's just can't. It's pollution. 
and you have to provide a clean area for these horses to live. It's that simple. That's how mama kept the worms out of you. She made sure you didn't eat where you defecate. And so, I, I think it bears, uh, you had mentioned 2,000 eggs per gram earlier. I think 500 is the threshold. Above that, it's considered a high, high shedder. So that was, that was a pretty high load for sure for that horse. And I, I have actually personally seen a, a young horse when I was at Louisiana Tech. It was a two-year-old that we had there that had been born and bred on the place, had been wormed. She was colicky on a regular basis. She finally died from one of those colics and our major professor came out and autopsied her with us and she was full of the worms just like you're you're talking about. But bottom line, here's the other thing I've always thought of the diatomaceous earth. It's made up of diatoms, which are basically crystallized single-celled organisms. So, so it is essentially feeding little bitty shards of glass to the horse. And we had talked earlier about the single-celled barrier in the hindgut. Well, if the single-celled shards of glass are in there to puncture eggs and, and kill all these single-celled organisms, then they're also theoretically doing the same amount of damage to the horse's hindgut and that leaky gut syndrome. You're, you're basically exacerbating that entire situation. So critically it, thinking it does it's not- It's worthy of thinking. Actually, um, I didn't mislead you. I just wasn't complete my uh, discussion of the lining of the gut. It is one cell layer thick. And then over on top of that cell layer is a thick layer of mucus. And that mucus is very protective. It binds to foreign proteins that they don't need. It probably binds to the diatoms that are in diatomaceous earth. And it just goes out the other end. I've never heard of diatomaceous earth causing a problem in horses. And that's probably why, but that mucus that's there is created by the bacteria. And that mucus layer is so important to the health. If that mucus layer gets stripped away, that's when your uh, endothelium starts to become uh, damaged. And that's when you start to get ulcerations. You have to get that mucus back in there. Mucus membranes is no different than the skin on our face, other than our skin is not uh, secreting mucus where our mucus membranes are secreting mucus. And that layer is so important. It helps lubricate, helps protect, helps to transfer uh, fats and proteins and everything to the cell in a regulated fashion and binds onto lectins and hauls them out. So if you, aren't, if you don't have the right bacteria in there, you're not gonna have the mucus covering and that is what causes the damage. So diatomaceous earth, I just think is bogus. I think it's a cheap dewormer that people buy thinking that it's like you asked me about vaccines earlier. That's uh, our next topic. So that one, <laughs> but it's, it's one tool in the belt that you have. And you have to look at all the other tools, such as produce mucus, uh, decrease the ingestion of parasite eggs, clean your pastures, clean your stalls. Don't let them live in manure. And once you get away from this high intake, then you're actually mimicking the way a horse was. He would eat here, then defecate there, then eat there, then defecate way over there, then eat there. And he'd be downtown Baton Rouge uh, next to your place, you know, next month. He wouldn't be eating where he defecated. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole idea behind septic systems in our houses. We don't get to eat where we defecate. And mama asked you to wash your hands. That was parasite control. And forks are parasite control, not mismanners. <laughs> One of the things you bring up there, if you do have enough pasture, 
you will find that horses actually tend to defecate in a single area and the grass will get tall in that area. And then they tend to eat yes. in other areas. So they, there's kind of a, a natural division there, but you have to have enough acreage to make that possible. Like you say, when you have 10 head on four acres, that's not going to happen. You brought up a great, great study done in the 80s. I wish I could find it. I haven't been able to find it. It was told to me by my professor at Cornell, uh, Dr. Skip Hintz. He said that this is one of the few studies, and this is back in the 80s. He said one of the few studies that makes sense. They took three groups of ponies. This is so cool. Three groups of ponies, and they're all parasite-free. Absolutely zero egg count, all of them. And in all these ponies, they dosed them with a specific amount of parasite larvae. And then they would test them all and their egg count went all up. So they're all equal. The first group of the three went out into pasture where they did absolutely no care. The second one, they turned out in the same type of pasture. All pastures were the same. The first group, they didn't do anything. That was the control group. The second one, they dewormed every six weeks. And the third one, they took a vacuum and vacuumed up all the manure piles. And it was so cool because what made the study so good was at the end of the study, they brought all the horses in, cleaned them all out, got them all to zero egg count, and then repeated the study three times. So each pony got to experience all three groups. All right. Group number one where nothing was done, egg count went up, and then over time, state came down a little bit, but stayed relatively high. Group two, it went up, and then came across, and then they were dewormed, it came down to zero, they reinfected themselves, came up, and came down six weeks. So every six weeks, you saw the spike. Hence, on all the dewormers, you saw deworm every six to eight weeks, because they knew at six to eight weeks, there'd be enough reinfects reinfections that now you gave the dewormer and you as a consumer would see an improvement therefore you would keep deworming them and the third group went straight up and came and went right down to zero due to their immune system and stayed at zero the whole length of the trial because they weren't reinfecting themselves their immune system took care of the parasites that study was so classic i've used since 1984 when I graduated from vet school and it still holds true today. Clean up your environment. If you want to be parasite free, Very let good. the immune system work. And then the last topic that I have for you is vaccinations. It has always perplexed me why I as a human can get vaccinated as a child and I don't have to go get an annual booster for mumps or measles or whatever, or a tetanus shot is supposed to last 15 years. And yet I've got these four-legged animals over here that are costing me an arm and a leg, and I've got to revaccinate those things all the time, at least annually. And if we have a broodmare, we've got to be giving her rhino or, and all of that every couple of months throughout pregnancy. And so what are your thoughts on vaccinations? And are there actually studies where they are taking a titer on these horses and there's research behind this saying, yes, you actually need to do this or, or is this all promoted by companies selling vaccines who are, uh, you know, need a reason to sell me something this year? You've got at least three questions here. Let me see if I can address uh, the most important one. Why vaccinate? And I have a video that I made in 2007 that you can see on YouTube that discusses this. I divide all vaccines into two groups. 
Group one is diseases that will kill you. And group two is diseases that will make you sick, but you'll get over it with good nursing care. The ones that'll kill you is tetanus, rabies, encephalitis, simple. Encephalitis includes Eastern, Western, Venezuelan encephalitis and West Nile encephalitis. So those, those diseases will kill you. Uh, rabies and uh, tetanus are not seasonal. The others are vector-borne. So those are the core vaccines. The AP is now calling those core. I don't know if they listen to my podcast or not, or there are a bunch of other like-minded people at AAP who said, yeah, we have to have a core set that everyone needs to do. So that would be uh, the diseases that kill your horse. There are some diseases that'll kill your horse that are regional, such as anthrax. If you lived outside of the country, there's other diseases like uh, African horse sickness. There's uh, equine infectious anemia that'll kill your horse, but we have no vaccine for it because that's caused by a virus that's just almost a kissing cousin to the um, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV. Uh, it's a lentivirus, and so far uh, that's eluded a vaccine. Uh, that's why you don't have vaccine for AIDS or for um, swamp fever. But for the diseases that will kill your horse, tetanus, absolutely. Rabies, absolutely. Uh, encephalitis is do it before the mosquitoes come and make sure you're protected until the mosquitoes go if you're in a season uh, that has winter. And that's usually like September disease up in New York. Uh, down floor, we have mosquitoes and flies all the time. We have mosquito control. That's how we try to control that. They also have sentinel birds, uh, pheasants, I think, or, or roosters, chickens that they keep in a cage and they're constantly drawing blood on these things. They're looking for antibodies that have been made to um, cephalidides, eastern cephalomyelitis. And as soon as it's, it's seen there, then the warning goes out and everybody makes sure that you're vaccinated for eastern cephalomyelitis, which is EEE, equine. It's a dead end host in horses. Uh, so it's supposed to be in the bird population, the bug population. That's why you use birds as sentinels. They don't actually die from it, but they are the harbinger of disinfection. But if it enters the horse, it's a dead end host, which means it actually kills the horse and it's not a good um, disease to get. So the, horse, the disease that will make your horse sick, um, rhino, for instance, uh, there's different types of rhino. You have the respiratory form, you have the neurological form that can kill a horse. Uh, and then of course you have the one that causes the abortion, as you mentioned, your pregnant mares you wanna cover. Uh, influenza in horses, equine influenza is a big disease, uh, especially the horses that are grouped together, that travel, that see other horses. Uh, strangles will make your horse sick. It can kill your horse, but good nursing care can prevent that. Uh, Potomac horse fever can kill your horse, but if you have good nursing care and you catch it right, it won't be a problem. So these are the vaccines that will make your horse sick, and but they can recover from it. If your horse gets tetanus, it's dead. If it gets rabies, not only is it dead, but it, there's a chance that you can get it from the rabbit horse. And encephalitis, uh, your horse is, with some exceptions, is dead. So your core vaccines versus your not core vaccines. So that's the answer to your first question, which vaccines do you wanna uh, protect against? I'm protected against rabies because I was attacked by rabbit horse. So I had the post exposure and then I've had a booster. That's a whole nother story. I'm protected against tetanus. You'd be a fool not to because you'll die from that. Um, polio, I had vaccine for that. <clears throat> Measles, rubella, mumps, you know, 
pox, I guess either I got self-immune or whatever. It's a long time ago. I can't remember. So those are the ones that'll kill you. Have I ever gotten a flu shot? No. For just a second, Doc, you might want to talk about uh, EHV1 and 4 in there. That's one of those things we hear about. Sometimes we went to a show and there was a horse there that had that. And I'll let you. I apologize because I, I call it rhino. Uh, equine herpes virus is rhinovirus. Yes, sir. Uh, it's not rhinovirus. Don't get me wrong, but it's rhinopneumonitis. I'm in the old school, but EHV1, EHV4. Um, you have the neurological form. What's interesting is it usually attacks from the hind end forward. So they, their tail stops switching. Then they sit down like a dog and with their front legs extended. And then it moves forward. Um, and that can kill your horse. There's the uh, respiratory form, which can be very devastating. And there's the abortion form. EHV uh, outbreak that occurred here in Wellington that shut everything down. Uh, the one that occurred in Spain last year, uh, there are 300 horses in one tent or one showgrounds with one FEI vet to cover 300 horses. And everyone started getting sick and they all just dispersed before they could shut it down and contain it. Biosecurity is a main problem at these shows. These horses are stressed. They're probably not being fed right. <laughs> you know, they're having all sorts of inflammation already from grains and balancers, which are highly inflammatory. In fact, I heard from this podcast that they actually did a study recently. I got to get my hands on it, where they gave a ration balancer to a horse and it caused an insulin spike. So if you're trying to keep your insulin down, don't feed a ration balancer. Uh, I've been preaching that for years in my pod, uh, my uh, blog called betrayal i talk about balancers and they're, they're just betraying you with horrific stuff so they're stressed they're shipped uh, they're confined uh, they don't have great airflow there's a lot of reasons why you can prevent uh, just like in coronavirus i mean if you've got cardiovascular disease your insulin is high you've got diabetes pre-diabetes you're a smoker although that doesn't seem to be such a cofactor and you've got uh, extra weight, especially abdominal belly fat rather than the uh, subcutaneous body fat. And then you get Corona on top of it. It's just like a horse. It's, it's, it's worked hard. It's shipped several hours. It's thrown into stalls. Not used to, he seems to be fine, but you can tell he's stressed. Then he's yanked out, but you know, the lights stay on all night. So he can't get a good night's sleep. Uh, he hears noises he's not used to. So he breaks up his sleep. His sleep patterns are bad. No one has studied sleep in horses. And I think that's a fascinating place for someone to go. But what it does to the body and inflammation, I would love to take horses that are exposed to light and classical music all night and then take their uh, cortisol levels and see if they're normal or not. No offense to classical music listeners out there. I just picked that because a lot of barns do that or they do country, they do 24-hour news. I've even heard that. But it's a noise. It's not that quiet, dark area that they've proven in humans you need. So that's EHV1, EHV4. And if so, you're going to they, the horse shows- Are there separate vaccinations for E1? So a rhino shot's not, like, like typically we see those as separate vaccinations, correct? I've got to tell you, I've been out of the game for a while. Okay. Uh, so I'm not absolutely clear. Uh, when I was in practice, I used Numerort K, and that was specific for the abortion form. And then they had the EHV1 form for the respiratory form. That's usually mixed with influenza. Uh, by the way, side note, little sidebar, uh, if your horse has reactions to these injections, I recommend one of two things. One, shake the crap out of the vial. 
make sure that all that sediment is just shook up like crazy. And then what I did was I inverted the vial and stuck the needle in and I drew out three cc's and I push it all back in. It would go through that 20 gauge needle and I draw it back out and do that several times. And then I would finally, you know, draw it out, click out some of the air bubbles and then draw out, make sure my dose is cracked, pull it out and boom, it went in the neck. That would reduce injection reactions so much. You have no idea. The problem is the vet tech draws up a hundred of these things and throws them in the refrigerator of the truck and the truck vibrates down the road. And then the guy takes it out and goes, boom, in there and the sediment's down there. You have to shake the crap out of it. You buy them in individual syringes, draw in air and shake like crazy and push the air out and then stick it in. I'm not worried about a few air bubbles. That doesn't seem to be a problem. There are a couple of horses that get horrible injection reactions no matter what. And the immunologist at Cornell told me that if your horse needs tetanus and he gets an injection reaction just to tetanus, then give one-tenth of a cc in the neck and then go back 30 days later, give another tenth. And that horse will have enough immune reaction that he'll still be protected. And even some of those horses would have an injection reaction, just wouldn't be as bad. But there are some horses that do have injection reactions. Okay, that was one of the questions, what to vaccinate for. The second is titers. And there have been studies that do titers on viruses or on diseases. And as a rule, they are not very good titers. They don't really reflect. And this is like true with coronavirus. You can draw blood on a person with a, for a titer and their titer can come in really low. Does that mean they're protected or not? You have to understand that the immune system has the um, innate and adaptive. The innate immune system are the T cells, and they have these memory cells that are out there saying, okay, is there anything out here that kind of looks like something we've had in the past? And if it does, boom, it sends out the alarm and it goes off to the adaptive immune system, which is your immunoglobulins, your B cells. And they will mount a response in your lymph nodes. That's why your lymph nodes swell or your armpits or wherever, because they're, they're the factories at full ch charge and they're coming out. When you take a titer, that's basically telling you how prepared the innate system is. But just because it's not a high titer, it can get really low. They can respond very quickly. And that's what they've seen with coronavirus. It, it bounces back very quickly. So just because you have a low titer doesn't mean that you're not protected. So doing titers isn't that uh, accurate in horses. And they put in millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to get these things licensed and approved. And to licensed, it applies to biologics like vaccines versus it's the word they use for drugs like sedatives. Um, it's not licensed. License is a biological, and that's, you know, we've all become familiar with this emergency use authorization where they bypassed all the studies that they have to do for safety and efficacy of vaccines so they could get some sort of protection out for people, and they, they skipped all that. And this is why so many people are anti-vaccines in the coronavirus, because they say, look, we don't have all the safety studies yet. But in the horses, they've done all the safety studies and they know that this shouldn't be used in a pregnant horse. Well, they don't know it. They just didn't use pregnant horses in the study. But they, um, they've done all the safety studies. They know the efficacy of it and they put it out. Don't get me going a uh, study of what efficacy is because efficacy, it can be a double-edged sword and it depends on how you interpret what efficacy is. How efficacious is, are these uh, vaccines? That brings us up to your third point. Who, who do you want to vaccinate for? Well, if you've got a broodmare and she's pregnant, 
and she sits in your backyard and sees no other horses, the chance of her getting exposed to rhino, equine herpes virus, is near zero. So why are you vaccinating? Okay. But if you're in a field of 20 broodmares that are coming and going, visiting your stallion, and they're circulating around, vaccinate them, you know, because your exposure is great. And it doesn't matter whether those horses are vaccinated or not. Vaccine doesn't really tell you if they're going to shed or not. Uh, vaccines are there to protect you against getting a disease, and it's not always efficacious. And that gets me back into what's efficacy. As we're seeing in coronavirus, uh, people are vaccinated for uh, coronavirus, and yet they're still getting this virus. Well, what's interesting about respiratory viruses, such as herpes virus, influenza, coronavirus, is they are so adaptable that they can change. So every year they have to come out with a different strain. So you have to keep vaccinating for this new and improved. It's like getting new software for your computer to mount its attacks, you know, prevention against viral attacks of your computer. They're constantly changing. Whereas tetanus doesn't change, rabies doesn't change. These diseases that come in and kill you, they're not adapting. They're going to kill you. Protect yourself against them. So how often you vaccinate for? Depends on how open or closed your herd is. If you've got a closed herd, meaning no horses come and go on your property, or if they do, your core group of horses are way off in the upper corner of your fields, like, you know, 10 acres away and they have no transmitting, you've got 50 yards or more between the two, now you're doing okay. Those are quarantined. If you have horses that are coming and going from the show, when you bring them back from the show, you put them over in this corner and they stay quarantined in that barn and they're taken care of for two weeks. By the way, in coronavirus, they found out that uh, the transmission period is uh, four days. After four days, you're not transmitting it anymore. So this two-week quarantine is kind of crazy 10 days, like Aaron Rodgers going through. There's no proof. In fact, the proof is now showing this is done by virologists, real virologists who said, look, after four days, that's why those um, members of the coronavirus that are sick in the hospitals and going ventilators, they're not finding coronavirus in them. It's gone. The damage is long lasting. But we don't know what those are, influenza and equine herpes virus. We just don't know because nobody's got the money to do it. I mean, again, Daniel, you and I, we make a billion dollars. Let's get together and do some of these studies. How long does it, do, do, do these things need to go for? Yeah. <laughs> Pay the bills first and take care of the family. What's I, left I over, we'll take care of the right? left over. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Although inflation is, is going up, we might need to make it two or three well, before long. The last time last time they had a billion dollar payoff, I, I bought a ticket and I announced to all my clients who are willing to listen. I said, I know what I'm doing with my billion dollars. And they said, what? I'm going to make a pill that fix stupid. <laughs> said, so, You're never going to make a pill that fix stupid. Are, are you aware there's research on that? The uh, Dr. Watson, I think, of Watson and Crick is, is actually trying to come up with a vaccine for stupidity. Yeah, interesting. I'd like to take a look at some of the stuff he's come up with. But anyway, it, it's the man's a genius. It, it's hard to just discount. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, that's about all that I've I've got. We've talked almost two hours here. I certainly appreciate it. I hate to tell you, three hours. Three? Oh, heck. We, we started eight and it's 11. Dad, go. Okay. Time flies, huh? 
I guess you got a part A, part B, part C on this one. I I think so. I I apologize for taking up all of your Saturday morning. That wasn't my intention, but it it was definitely a a fun discussion for me, and I I hope the same for you. Everybody, I would definitely direct you towards Dr. Tucker's podcast, The Horse's Advocate. He's also got a website that is a membership-type website and a Facebook group, too, I believe. Um, where you can approach With a him. ton of free content, a mm-hmm. ton of free content. All my co- podcasts are free. All my articles are free. If, if you are a geeky, detail-oriented kind of person, obviously he has a wealth of information and, and he genuinely has the horse's best interest at heart. Kind of like me, he's not sponsored by anybody. There, there's no, uh, no financial dog in the fight to direct you anywhere or anything like that. It's just just what he believes and what he knows. And and I think he knows quite a bit. He's definitely an outside the box critical thinker, which I appreciate a lot myself. I couldn't recommend him any more highly. So go check him out. There is a cost. There is a cost to you listeners for the one or two of you who are actually listening to us. (laughs) The the cost is, is to pass this on. You know, this, you know, we talk about a lot of things here that a lot of people would get uh, some good information out of. If you're a veterinarian, listen to it and challenge me. You know, challenge both of us. Go to Daniel and say, well, I don't agree with this. And, and let's get some discussion going. This isn't I'm right, you're wrong. I don't think Daniel and I uh, want that. We want to open up discussions that are new in thought and allow us to think outside the box, as you say, to really get to the bottom of things. We know that what we're doing isn't working. It's getting worse. So let's figure out what's not working, change it and make it work for our horses because there are captives. They really are. And we need to advocate for them. So I appreciate you asking me on. Absolutely. Well, so, I think it's sure been it's... very enlightening. I, I do think if it's been three hours, we may do this as a part one and part two. I guess I'll have to record a second sponsor for, for part two. <laughs> but we can handle that. I'll, I'll put my creative juices to work. Maybe we'll have a vaccine company sponsor the second part or something. Um, but yeah. Anyway, again, <laughs> very enlightening. I guess I probably owe you and your wife brunch or something like that for taking up all of a Saturday morning. But next time you're you're through Louisiana, you come uh, through uh, Disney World. We're only two hours south. Two hours south. I do go through Florida sometimes, but it's usually North Florida. I haven't headed that far south. I almost had a clinic in Miami last year, but. The coronavirus ended that one for me, and I haven't been back in contact with those people. But anyway, anytime I'm I'm well, I'm near you, I'll make it a point to visit. So. Sounds great. Me too. Well, uh, All right, thank thanks, you. you, Daniel. Yes, sir. We'll sign off now. It's been Adult Onset Horsemanship with Dr. Jeff Tucker of the Horses Advocate and Horsemanship Dentistry. Yeah, we should say that if if you're interested in becoming an equine dentist, he also has a school for that. And um, it's true. When you see someone do this without sedation, without speculum, without all that stuff and still get the results, it's, it is uh, definitely enlightening and eye-opening. So thank you, Dr. Tucker. Take care. Thank you, Daniel.